VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the fellow you'll be speaking with when you give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So the festival season continues. For those of you who have tickets to go to the Churchill Park Music Festival, it looks like the sloppy wet weather will ease up by the time the bands hit the stage tomorrow night. So it kicks off tomorrow evening in the park, Friday, August 11th, uh, with the kitchen party, so to speak, right? The kickoff, the punters, Celtic Connection, Masterless Men, Irish Ascendants, Rum Ragged, pretty stout lineup, and of course it runs over the course of two weekends. And for the soccer enthusiast, championship weekend in the senior soccer sides. So you've got the Breen's Jubilee Trophy and the Johnson Insurance Challenge Cup. So the uh, Jubilee is going to be played down at King George V, and they begin tonight at 6 p.m. Holy Cross, uh, Neutral Holdings versus Paradise. The Men's Challenge Cup will be taking place out in CBS at the Topsail Turf, and they kick it off uh, tomorrow evening. First game is 1v4, Holy Cross versus Paradise. So some good soccer on tap this weekend. All right, for the rainy days, I had a couple of people that I ran into yesterday, you know, kind of bemoaning the fact that you just take your chances when you select when you're going to take a little break or holiday over the summer season. And, of course, if this was your week, then you didn't get the great weather, which is unfortunate. Maybe it's an opportunity to play some board games. And I bring this up because I just think this is a really interesting story. So born on this date, 120 years ago, 1903, a gentleman named Anthony Pratt. His claim to fame is he converted the popular social party game called Murder into a tabletop board game that we know, uh, we know as Clue. So he was an assemblyman in a munitions factory in England during the war. And he thought that the war was really killing social life in England. So he tried to figure out how to take the social game murder and put it on a tabletop, on a board game. So the original characters, Dr. Black, Mr. Brown, Mr. Gull, Reverend Green, Miss Gray, Professor Plum, Miss Scarlet, Nurse White, Mrs. Silver, and of course, Colonel Yellow, now known as Colonel Mustard. So it was a huge hit. His wife, when they played it with some of their friends, said, you got to take this to a big gaming company. So he introduced it to Waddington's, and they thought, this is great. And they created what was originally launched as Cluedo. Here's what is really fascinating. Parker Brothers, they were their American game manufacturer, of course. They produced Monopoly, which they started in 1935. They went to Waddington's to inquire about Clue. And so what happened is they swapped the rights for Monopoly in exchange for the ones to Pratt's Games Clue. They launched it in the United States in 1949. Apparently, the ranking of board games, at least when I read this particular news item, Clue is the second most famous uh, is the second most famous board game behind, of course, Monopoly. And companies, Parker Brothers and Waddington's, made a switch or a switch or a flop or a, an exchange of rights to those famous games. Okay. Good story followed by a bad story. I had never heard of this particular scam, but of course, if it's happening anywhere in the country, eventually it's going to make its way to our province. And the RNC are warning about what they call cash trapping. I had to read the story twice to make sure I understood it. So apparently, there was one particular drive-through ATM. I've never used a drive-through ATM. So what 
the scammers, the criminals do, is they put a metal bar where the cash would be uh, distributed. And, of course, you ring in and you make the transaction. Nothing comes out. You figure the machine's either out of money or it's just not working. And as soon as you drive away, then the people who put the metal bar that will keep the cash from coming out, they come over, take out the metal bar, take your cash. So be very wary of this. It hasn't happened here. They figured that scam started somewhere around the 4th of August. So if you have any information on this, I mean, it's just relentless. But as we all know, if it's a scam anywhere, it's eventually going to be part of the featured scammer criminal element here in this province. So cash trapping. How about that one? Bad story? Great story. I saw this floating around on Facebook, and I wondered what the uptake would be. And this was a plea from an antique car enthusiast named Glenn Thomas. He heard that there was a resident of a long-term care facility, or retirement home, pardon me, Carwood Retirement Retreat in Paradise. There was a senior there, Will, uh, Winfield Harnett. He's just days away from moving into palliative care. He's a retired mechanic, and he loves the old cars. And so Mr. Thomas put it out there. You know, for sure they thought people would respond to be maybe a few cars would show up for Mr. Harnett to go out and have a look. And lo and behold, about 70. So it was a real pop-up, as we know, with the traditional car show. So just terrific. If you're one of those people who brought your car in the middle of a workday, 2 p.m., out so Mr. Harnett could wheel around, you know, look under the hood, and remember that he could repair all of these vehicles, it was a magic day. And so he's, th- he's chuffed, of course, as is his family. So bravo to any of you who brought your car out for Mr. Harnett to have a look before he makes his way to palliative care. Just incredible stuff. I love that story. Good for everybody involved. All right, what's this? Oh, yeah, and in the world of vehicles, what have you, the price of gas down a couple of cents, diesel up three cents, uh, furnace oil, stove oils, they went up about three cents a liter as well. So you just never know where it's going to end. I will continue to wonder aloud when we heard that the government was asking the PUB, as opposed to simply a news release, help walk us through exactly how we arrive at these numbers. Help compare and contrast the formula we use to other parts of Atlantic Canada. Yes, there's going to be some oddities or unique features of importation and distribution in this province. I get it. But we seem to be just out of line with a variety of other Atlantic provinces on those prices. But there you go. You want to take it on. Let's do it. Now, we talked yesterday about the fact that there is going to be potentially requirements for a net zero emissions electricity grid if the provinces and businesses operating here are going to be be able to avail of tens of billions of dollars in tax credits. That's a big one. But we just mentioned the price of gas. The implication of the clean fuel regulations still brings a lot of unknowns with it. So on the 1st of July, the consumers, we haven't really seen or felt the burden of these clean fuel regulations as of yet, but here's what they're trying to uh, do here. The goal is to push the companies to gradually reduce the emissions intensity, uh, basically by adding more uh, more different additives to the fuels. So fine and dandy, but somewhere down the line, us consumers, we are going to feel the pinch. There has been a ton of money invested in some of these companies. So when their margins on a liter of fuel have increased dramatically over the last course of the four or five past years, it should be incumbent on them to comply with clean fuel regulations. We don't make the fuels. We simply consume the fuels. And yes, there's going to be more and more vehicles, electric and hybrids or what have you, but the reality is they have the opportunity to adjust their processes to hit these clean fuel regulations. One notable, of course, Irving. Now, this is not necessarily about 
Irving's business here, but this is about, I mean, in the refinery business, this is about how they operate in the shipyard. So it is really quite clear that Irving, when they signed a contract to build the ships for the Royal Canadian Navy, they were awarded a lucrative contract, and it said quite clearly in that contract that Irving's would be on uh, would have to foot the bill for any upgrades required to build these warships. But now we understand that the federal government is spending over $460 million to help Irving upgrade their Halifax shipyard facility. What changed? You know, what changed here? If Irvings were able to win a contract, and it says clearly that they have to pay for any upgrades required to satisfy the contract, but now, lo and behold, $460 plus million to help them do exactly what they're supposed to do on their, of their own accord. Don't like it. How about you? You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. Some confusion, at least for me here. When we talk about psychology and psychologists, we know that there's some 36 vacancies here in the province. There's a net gain of three based on whether it be stemming the exodus with the $15,000 temporary market adjustment, the stipend that was given to psychologists here. Then the concern came about the ongoing offerings on campus at Memorial University at the Student Wellness and Counseling Center. We have spoken to a variety of people about this issue. And now Memorial University itself leadership is responding to concerns brought forward by the student union. They say, and they recognize, that the center is a critically important resource. They go on to say that the center does not need accreditation to operate. This where it feels like kind of glossing over the larger problem. Not to say that that isn't an important resource, because of course it is. But their doctoral residence professional psychology program does require accreditation. So, okay, the center itself can operate, but when we know that we've got a problem with not only the number of psychologists working here, but how many psychologists are required to offer the supervision and the mentoring upon graduation. So, yes, it's great that the center will be able to continue to operate. And, yes, it's great to tell us that, cross our fingers and hope for the best, that our long tradition of accreditation since 2003 will remain in place. But what happens if it doesn't? So they say they've been operating with the same faculty complement for over a decade. Again, fine, but people actually working there, they can talk about the important offering at the center, but if we see a lack of accreditation or a loss of accreditation for the actual doctoral residency program, that's a huge problem. So it really feels like painting a very rosy picture, but not addressing the long-term concerns of how many psychologists will be working here in our ability to satisfy supervision. Over the last 20 years, about 40% of the graduates from the program have remained in the province. That's a pretty good retention rate. Sure, could always be better considering we have the captive audience in all our healthcare training schools, and you know all the ones, but that kind of feels like we're only being told half of the concern, but you want to take it on. And of course, anything in that envelope, more than happy to talk about it. All right, moving on. So Suncor, with profits of over $20 billion last year, now apparently the Terranova FPSO is going to leave Bullarm, tentatively scheduled for tomorrow, to make its way back to the Grand Banks. Of course, this is a lengthy process to get it there and for all the hookups to be done properly so they can get back to producing. It does feel like there's a lot of time left in the year for there to be no production throughout the entirety of this calendar year. And remember, we're in. We're in on all the oil fields, but an extended in with the Terranova field. So again, over $200 million cash on the barrel head, uh, $300 million in royalty forgiveness or relief. 
So maybe, just maybe, a little bit more information as opposed to Facebook starting the story. Rob Strong bringing it to our attention here on the program. Of course, oil and gas veteran consultant Rob Strong. So where are we? It's kind of amazing to me that, number one, we weren't a little bit more stern with doing some of the work that could be done here at Topsides, for instance, right here in this country and in this province, pardon me, versus the extended trip to Spain, the apparent deficiencies in some of the work that was done in Spain. We had to send some of our tradespeople to Spain and then back here into Bull Arm. Looks like the repairs are done and all the refurbishments have been completed. But I think it's kind of interesting that I don't hear much from our political representatives here about a bit more information coming from Suncor. Because again, with their profitability and the monies that we have spent and or for, forgave, you'd think just maybe we can get a bit more information about the oil industry. I'm into it. Into talking about it. All right. I had an opportunity or an occasion yesterday to go to Shoppers Drug Mart. And just curiously, when I woke up this morning and started perusing the news, there's a pretty lengthy story about the explosion in the number of self-checkouts. When I was at Shoppers yesterday, there was someone standing at the cashier's counter, but there was no cashier. I don't know if that person just ran to get something or what have you, but the only opportunity for me was a self-checkout. So... It is frustrating for many. The story kind of focuses in on a lady who has a mobility issue. She has multiple sclerosis, and she feels it's really quite demeaning to have to ask for help at a self-checkout. So that's one uh, piece of it. But even if you look at how it's changed, the landscape at retail has changed in the United States, because that's where the story uh, deals with some research done by a company named Video Mining. They analyzed shopper checkout habits during 1.2 billion trips to more than 1,000 U.S. grocery stores in 2002, 2022. They found that self-checkout made up more than half, 55% of all customer transactions. In 2017, that number accounted for about one-third, or 36% of transactions, so it is growing exponentially. The study also found that the self-checkouts made up almost half of all the registers in the stores, uh, compared to 2017 when it was only 34%. So this is only going to grow. I think, or I guess, it's a question about convenience versus customer service. You know, many people are probably happy enough just to go to the self-checkout. You got one item, in and out, pretty quick, no big deal if you know how to. It's fairly easy to navigate, but maybe not for all hands. Before long, that number of 44 or 48% is probably going to be 60%, and then it's going to grow beyond that. So it might be fine for most to use a self-checkout, but remember, yes, there is absolutely a job for building and maintaining and fixing these self-checkouts, but nowhere near the numbers of people hired that in the traditional form of, re of retail that would have been cashiers. So anyway, that one to me I think is an interesting story. How about you? All right, last one before we get to the break and your call. I just don't know if we're going to see the federal liberal government speak a little bit more clearly about foreign interference. Yet another story yesterday. It's not new, but it's now very much confirmed by Global Affairs Canada that there was a purposeful disinformation campaign targeted at conservative member Michael Chong. He's the member for, it's an Ontario riding where he's been, or federal riding where he's been since 2004, Wellington Halton Hills. Okay, so between an RCMP officer now charged 
in the issue regarding foreign interference. And of course, all the wealth of knowledge that particular person would have in operations and potential intelligence secrets. And the 11 candidates that have been targeted and the Handong incident and the manipulation of Chinese media here by Beijing. Now this Michael Chong story, while the federal government's spins its wheels looking for a replacement to David Johnston. And in fact, when the RCMP story broke, this was based on CSIS documents, but it was never mentioned in Mr. Johnson's final report as the special rapporteur. Look, again, we might not be able to glean a whole lot more in a public inquiry, but whatever has to be done for Canadians to have faith in the integrity of our electoral system is critical. What's the hesitation here? I mean, even inside the world of 11 candidates, we're told seven liberal candidates, four conservative candidates. And yes, there's some politics being played by opposition members, which is nature of the beast. Politics is politics. But I think if we don't go down a path of a public inquiry here, a judicial inquiry, yes, with all the protection for state secrets, and yes, all the intelligence that needs to be kept from public eyes can indeed uh, be so. But we'll have people, hopefully that will be deemed independent and trusted. David Johnston was probably a very good candidate, but of course, with any relationship with anybody on the liberal side of the government, whether it be the Trudeau Foundation or the Prime Minister himself, and some of those relationships, I think, have been grossly exaggerated. But a public inquiry, how can it be avoided? It's just an endless trickle, understanding, and it's not just China, and it's not just the elections in 2019 and 2021. It's been extensive, and it's growing election over election. So that global affairs story regarding Michael Chong, they say there doesn't seem to be any threat to his safety or his family's safety, but very purposeful, targeted misinformation campaign, basically and mostly driven on a popular uh, instant messaging platform named WeChat. It's part of a Chechen-based technology company, Tencent, but anyway, it's a wonder that we can't get some forward momentum on that particular issue. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, the show and the content, the topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one and say good morning to the executive director at Choices for Youth. That's Sheldon Pollitt. And good morning, Sheldon. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. So we had a call yesterday from a gentleman who I I think you're familiar with. It's about concerns he has about continued police presence and some risks that he perceives to the community regarding one of the homes that he says is a group home that you folks run on Empire Avenue. Right off the bat, what's your relationship with that home? And is it a group home or how is it structured? No, it, it's it's not a group home. I, I, I get the assumption when it comes to work with young people, but it, it is not a group home. What it is, we have, you know, partnerships with the city of St. John's. We have partnerships with Newfoundland Labor Housing. We have some of our own units. We have some partnerships with private landlords to provide housing for young people, in particular, uh, in, for example, in our rapid rehousing program, which is a national model around helping people, you know, getting, uh, getting out of the shelter system as quickly as we can into uh, housing. So it's a private rental arrangement where we provide supports to the individuals who choose to live there. Okay. So when it comes to supports or oversight or monitoring or whatever the right word is, it's undeniable that the police have been there many, many times in the recent past. So what sort of what sort of monitoring or supports are you offering continuously throughout the day to this one or two people who are obviously troubled? But so how does that support work? So how it works, we work closely with, you know, in, in more extreme situations, which 
we we have you know probably over 100 people a night in various housing arrangements so i mean this is not the norm but it does happen in our work we work with folks who have uh, as the caller identified and i certainly appreciate the understanding on that front with you know some pretty specific needs, uh, not all on the on the high acuity end of it, I would say, but we do end up in situations where we're supporting people with some pretty complex issues. And, you know, this is what it looks like to try and work through, provide support, respect the individual's right to free choice because we don't control people, um, but offer as much support as we can. So with that program, for example, would be you know, daily check-ins, we make sure we want a good community around us, so we always provide, you know, contact information where possible um, to, you know, neighbors who can call us if they have an issue, which we've done in this situation. Uh, I do acknowledge that, you know, it, it is very trying when you see these things going on in the neighborhood. We're never uh, kind of blind or, or ignoring that, um, but the work is around how to meet the needs of this individual. Uh, in this case, uh, in a supportive way, because if we move someone on from order housing arrangements, we're not giving up on them. We just need to find them something that would work for them. So that's what we're kind of working through now, working with you know government officials who are involved in, in various situations. We work with the RNC, and we try to be as communicative as we can with neighbors, knowing it is not easy when things like this happen. So if it's not a, a group home, as people would understand it in the traditional sense, if this is a rental agreement, how does that complicate the process, even for support or to deal with these concerns? Because uh, all of a sudden now you fall under legislation regarding yep. residents and tenants, so the Residential Tenancy Act. So how does that complicate the path forward? The path forward for us is I mean, we're subject to all those processes and rules just like everyone else. And if we recognize situations not working for a young person or the people around them we have to go through all those steps as well so there's a certain you know uh, reality of a timeline and a process we don't have control over we're working as quickly as we can uh, in everyone's best interest so there's a lot of time and energy going into this even though certainly when you see things like that happening in the community uh, it's hard to understand because it, it, there are there are no simple solutions to situations like this because we have to worry about everybody. Given the complexities, have you brought the neighbors, the residents into the fold, you know, status updates as to where you are, what's happening, who's involved, you know, including the caller yesterday. I believe his name was David. Yes, yeah, so we have, our staff have been talking to David. I'm not sure if they've been talking to other neighbors. Um, certainly respect his rights to speak up for himself and, and others around him. Uh, so we have had uh, our coordinator staff, our senior director staff have chatted to David. I'm hoping to chat with him later on today as well if, he, um, if he's available. So we do our best. Doing our best doesn't necessarily mean there are easy solutions, and I say that with all empathy for anyone affected by difficult situations. So that's the Empire Avenue concern, and if, if David's listening would like to uh, touch base with me and or we can help connect the two, yourself and Mr. and your and David, I don't know his last name, let's move off to Lamarchant Road. So, you know, offering uh, services in the downtown has long been the presence of choices for youth. Now, moving a little further into the West End, tell us what's happening with the old grocery property. So that's a very exciting opportunity. A big part of our work these days is around, yes, creating stability in the lives of young people when it comes to housing. 
but the other building blocks of life. They need access to education, employment opportunities, a path forward. How do they sustain themselves and, and thrive in the way that we would want all of our own kids to thrive? So that's where social enterprise training and employment comes into it. We've been operating for about, I don't know, five years at a temporary location in Rollbox Lane. Amazing work in very cramped uh, space. Um, so this is a golden opportunity now to really thrive and grow into, if anyone's been to our cross-traffic bakery shop on Pearson Street, amazing food, amazing staff, and they're training and employing in people for better futures. It's incredible. Right next door to that is Neighborhood, which is a boutique thrift shop that is going gangbusters. So these are some of the uh, social enterprise businesses uh, that will be uh, we'll be opening up uh, additional venues uh, at this new site as well. It'll be the permanent home of Impact Construction, which is our longest-standing social enterprise around providing opportunities in and around the construction industry. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And then there's the shop, which is a small-scale production uh, social enterprise. You know, partnering with uh, you know local. Uh, businesses who are, you know, need support scaling up. So those are just some of the exciting opportunities to train and employ young people for better futures. Let's talk about social enterprises. You know, I think there's a lot of unknowns regarding like how they're born, whether or not I have to create a business model and bring it to you, or you help facilitate the creation of a social enterprise and the importance of. So walk us through the origin of a social enterprise, whether it be impact construction or anything else. So our history is probably the easiest for me to to go through is, you know, we always talk about, Patty, you're familiar with, we have a uh, youth services center uh, in downtown St. John's um, called Carter's Hill is what most people call it. Uh, when, When we got the keys to that building, you know, that's when the benefits from a private contractor, that's when the benefit accrued to our community. Absolutely fantastic, wonderful relationship with that contractor. Uh, you go ahead to 2010, we opened up the Lily, which is there on Bond Street, 14 units of affordable housing. Uh, the benefit to the community started probably 18 months to two years earlier when a bunch of young people walked in from a training and employment opportunity and started tearing it apart and helping us rebuild it for housing. So that's, for us, the origin story of social enterprise is that if we're going to do an activity, if we can wrap additional opportunities for youth around it, that's a winner in our view because all of our young people, like I said, they need housing and they need supports, but they also need education and employment. So social enterprises are basically businesses uh, who are, you know, purposely designed, we usually say, to support young people around their needs. So if you look at neighborhood, there's a wraparound support model behind uh, all of that to, to properly support young people about the real challenges in their lives. Uh, because once you do that, uh, I have never met a young person that doesn't want a better life. Absolutely. And, of course, for every organization offering supports on every front, we've heard nothing but an uptick in the numbers of people coming through the door looking for help or whether looking to be involved in social enterprise or looking for various supports. I would imagine the same could be said for your group. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we were paying attention to as part of, uh, you know, I sit on the... uh, Former persons task group that was formed did great work through COVID, and I think pretty much all of us were worried going into COVID what was coming. But we're also very worried of what was coming out of COVID, and what we've seen is everything is just magnified. The need is greater, the volume is greater, the complexity of what people are coming with is greater. You know, it's no big secret in terms of what's happening in our 
community these days or communities across the province I should say around addictions and you know the you know even the, the you know the amount of fentanyl in our communities now like all of that points to a, a growing need in our community and that's for us I mean we talk about social innovation a lot Patty is what are the most innovative things we can think of create partner with someone else in the world who's already done it have a much greater impact on our communities here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, just want to backtrack very quickly before we let you go this morning. Yep. So inside the Rally Forward program, yep. if you have, say, someone else who's getting support from your organization or any other organization living in one of these rental-type setups, not like a group yep. home or it's 24-7 uh, supervision, yep. so if someone thinks that they are unsafe or they think it's too toxic for them and they feel like they have to leave, what happens to that person? So we have, in emergency situations, we have, you know, uh, our uh, shelter for male-identifying youth, there's Naomi Center. We'd look first to uh, crisis responses. If it's an emergency situation, someone had to go immediately. Uh, But if we have time, then our work is to find uh, another housing arrangement that would work for them. So we support young people in single units. We have some programming that's more congregate setting because I mean, we know of all the young people coming to us, they all want something a little different or something a little different will work for them. So we try to have a range of housing options, as it were. Um, so that's that's how it works is, is we would work with that person or a group of people in some cases, I suppose, uh, to help them identify, you know, what the options they want to consider because one of the one of the pieces of you know this whole model around housing first which is basically accepted internationally these days is people actually have a right to choice in the housing so that you have to make sure that the person you're trying to support you know the options you're presenting to them are the ones actually they feel will work for them but that can be challenging in a housing market like we have today. It's incredibly difficult to find any affordable housing anywhere. Uh, absolutely right. I mean, the vacancy rate is undeniable, and the prices being charged for rent have grown as well. I mean, and some of those complications come from whether it be the Bank of Canada and a variety of things. So it's yeah. like most things, uh, it's, it's complex. Uh, Sheldon, yeah, appreciate absolutely. the time this morning. Thank you, Patty. Much appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Sheldon Pollard is the executive director at Choices for Youth. Let's take a break. When we come back, John's in the queue to talk about the recreational food fishery. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir, and thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, I'm uh, just calling today uh, to discuss a, a point related to the recreational food fishery. Um, yesterday, I uh, went online to uh, try and find an application uh, for my mother-in-law, who is elderly and is uh, diagnosed with dementia, and uh, but she still lives in her own home with, uh, you know, supports in place here right now uh, type thing with workers. And, of course, uh, given that she's only living under the income of like your old age pension and CPP, having uh, access to some, for example, in this case, fresh codfish would be definitely a benefit as far as saving money, et cetera. And it's a healthy food source as far as, uh, you know, we're all concerned here in uh, in Newfoundland. So I went online and I basically looked up how to make application to get fish for uh, her to uh, have that, uh, you know, like to, to look for where I would fill this out. And when I looked online, I found a form that basically 
uh, highlighted the idea that I could get an application for maybe somebody who had a permanent disability that was physical in the way of that if you had an impairment maybe in your lower limbs or your upper limbs they also talked about a visual impairment I could get a, an application to give her a fish but I looked around I said I must be missing something because there's nothing here for people who are elderly and there's nothing here for anybody with a cognitive impairment so I decided to phone fisheries and uh, say you know where, where 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 should I go to find this form so in discussion with the people at uh, fisheries they informed me that of course there is no form for somebody with a cognitive impairment nor is there a form for somebody who is elderly and which uh, it kind of made me sit back and say I I can't really believe this here's a Newfoundlander that's paid taxes all their life they're now in their 80s they couldn't possibly go out in the boat Uh, it's too much risk for them they're still paying taxes in Newfoundland here right now and yet they can't fill out a form either you know as an elderly Newfoundlander or as a person with a cognitive impairment here uh, they can't avail of this uh, you know having somebody catch their fish so I, I just uh, want to put that out there that I think it's absolutely ridiculous it sounds ridiculous a disability designation you think it would be an absolute catch-all and it would be about those who can execute the fishery safely and if you have a cognitive issue then there's absolutely a jeopardy associated with safety when you're out on the water I would suggest so I didn't know this wasn't included because you know the form has to be uh, filled out by your doctor or your ophthalmologist and when the reference to ophthalmologists is there, you would think that would come with some adherence to cognitive disabilities. So I'm really surprised that you're left out uh, on this front. It seems patently unfair. A disability designation is not trying to find a loophole, get more fish than you should. It's about very fundamentals. Those who can't can designate one person to catch their daily bag limit on their behalf. And so this makes no sense to me. And I agree. And, and Patty, I was blown away. I said to the lady that I was talking to, I said, uh, you know, if this got out there in uh, our world of social media and news and that, that the, the federal, you know, fisheries is, is limiting somebody with a cognitive uh, disability or for that matter, just an elderly person who is, uh, you know, like I could have somebody come in, for example, you know, if you look at the scenarios they put in there, like uh, some physical impairments, I have friends who are amputees that are as able-bodied as any person, like they have found ways to do things, and they don't need assistance. They could operate the boat, for example, themselves if they wanted to, yet I could go out and catch fish for them. I could have somebody visit from away who is not paying taxes in this province, who is not lived their life in this province and I could catch fish for them you know like they can come out in the boat and they can take their fish but an elderly person even if they did not have a dis- disability of any sort as far as I'm concerned if they're if they're uh, you know people in this province and I don't know if you could put an age cap in there or whatever you want to do but if if they needed fish for their table they should be able to have a way that people can apply for this. And in this case, it you know it's amped up even more with the fact that a doctor has uh, given her a diagnosis of dementia. So this cognitive impairment would make it absolutely impossible for me to put her in the boat. And I wouldn't do it for the sake of, obviously, for five fish. I wouldn't risk somebody's life for that. It's, it's certainly not worth that. So I just wanted to bring it to your attention. And uh, hopefully if there's anybody connected to fisheries, uh, you know, who's listening, they could explain this. Because to me, it's it's absolutely absurd. And I think it's a rule that needs to be changed immediately so that our uh, our people in this province who have given for their whole life 
And incidentally, as a, a really funny aside with this story, this person who can't get the fish actually worked for federal fisheries and now can't get five fish for probably something that they helped, you know, uh, ensure the safety of our stock. You know, so it's it's even ironic that they're in this position. I would consider it galling. As much as ironic. Uh, I had no idea this was the case. I thought that disability designation was fairly all-encompassing, but apparently not. I think it's an interesting point you make. Uh, A friend of yours who may be an amputee, able to navigate the boat, execute the fishery, no problem, but would at the same time be eligible for disability designation. Someone who may be living with full onset Alzheimer's or dementia, unable to get someone to catch five fish for them. Extraordinary stuff. I have, there's and, and a, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry about that, Patty. Uh, and the, the healthcare system has encouraged us, by the way, as communities to try and keep our elderly, uh, you know, parents and so on in their own home situation as long as possible for not only their own personal benefit, but for, you know, to reduce the stress on the healthcare system. And, you know, you might say as a family, we have complied with that and we have gone through the supports to allow, uh, you know, in this case, my mother-in-law to stay in her own home. Home. However, now it, it, it puts her in a, uh, you know, a position where she's paying for home care and, you know, she can't get an application to get a high quality food source to her table, which, you know, we could supply if, if it was possible. I just think it's something that I wanted to bring to the table. And I really hope somebody from fisheries has some kind of explanation that would make this anything but an issue that boils my blood. And mine. Uh, John, I had no idea this was the case, but I'm really glad that you brought it forward. We'll see if we can't get DFO to rationalize or explain as to why this is the way it is. Uh, Thanks for this, John. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You would think. I mean, it's, you know, it can be a potentially dangerous situation. I mean, it's not like being a commercial fish harvester, but... The mother-in-law with cognitive disability unable to get someone to designate, which is a formal process for doing it. I don't know if you're ever going to see a time where there's going to be an age cutoff where they automatically you can qualify to designate someone to fish on your behalf, but that scenario doesn't make any sense. There's a couple of contacts for DFO associated directly with the recreational food fishery. We'll send them an email right away during this break to talk about how and why. That's the way it is. Really nonsensical, but like many things from certain organizations, that's the nature of the beast. Uh, Let's take a break on time. So when we come back, we're going to say good morning to the CEO at the Newfoundland and Labrador Construction Safety Association with a new program that they have in operation. And then we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, tomorrow, Friday, August the 11th, will be the sixth annual Newfoundland and Labrador Construction uh, Safety Standdown. Join us on line number one is the CEO at the NLCSA. That's Jackie Manuel. Good morning, Jackie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's kind. How about you? Good, good. So basically, let's just talk about the bare bones of stand down, then we'll dig into the numbers a little more. Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, we started this back uh, six years ago in response uh, to a really bad start to our industry. We were seeing construction workers. um, We'd had a number of fatal accidents, um, serious injuries. And so we said, you know what, as an industry, we need to stop and Take, take some time and, and reevaluate. So, you know, over and above the routine safety activities that might take place, this is important and we need to stop and sort of reassess what we're doing and, and, and see if there's any new things that happened. 
that we might have overlooked, that we might not have planned for. So that's what the safety stand down is all about, to encourage workplaces, construction in particular, but any workplace can do this, to stop tomorrow, um, you know, an opportunity for management to engage with workers to talk about health and safety in their workplace. I mean, we're talking about some pretty high risk work. So, you know, I see it and I would imagine others see it as well. This is where the obligation lies. So the worker has the ability to refuse unsafe work, but how many times have I seen someone up putting shingles on the roof with no security at all, simply just walking around, no tethers, no nothing. Even when I had to apply from workplace uh, safety to get a tether system where I was standing on a six-foot uh, scaffold to do the regatta coverage. So where's the obligation for safety lie? Is it solely with the employer? Is it shared with the worker? Because sometimes we all see these unsafe practices. Patty, everybody in the workplace has a responsibility, you know, and like um, the, the owner, the, the, uh, the employer ha- has obligations and responsibilities to provide a safe workplace. Workers, uh, obviously, you know, have to take responsibility for their own health and safety. But the key in the middle of all that are supervisors, because those are the individuals that have the most direct control over what takes place on the shop floor every day. And so it's, you know, it's critical that supervisors Supervisors also understand their obligations, um, but but everybody, I mean, every every stakeholder has has a responsibility for for health and safety in the workplace. So, how does it work if someone, whether it be work on their own home or in their neighborhood, whether it be on a commercial property or just a residence, if someone says, "Look, I see what I see here, and I deem it to be unsafe," who responds to that? What actually happens if that type of complaint comes in the door, whether it be your association or their government at service NL or the heavy civil association or who? what have you so and it depends on obviously the nature of the work and where it is but you know bottom line if uh, if anybody witnesses unsafe work um, they can contact the occupational health and safety uh, department of the department of digital government and service nl the osh division and uh, and they do investigate every complaint now uh, you know their investigation might not necessarily be we're going to show up at the site they may reach out to the employer, but, you know, if you witness, um, you know, uh, if, if anyone witnesses unsafe work, they can just, they can reach out. They have, uh, you know, they have a full process where they, um, they, they do investigate complaints. You know, if, if, uh, if, it's, if it's unsafe work, for example, on, on our highways, then, you know, the municipality may also have a role. Um, so, you know, it, it depends. And, and we get calls all the time. And so then we try and direct um, the person to the, to, you know, to, to the right people to talk to or we'll, we'll reach out ourselves. Tomorrow will be the sixth annual stand down. Let's look at some of the numbers over the past five years. So it looks like some workplace lost time injuries have improved. That stat has improved, but not so much with the serious injuries. Where are we? Yeah, I mean, as a as a province, as and as an industry, we've uh, we've made tremendous progress over the last uh, twenty years in terms of injury prevention, um, but we haven't seen as much improvement when it comes to serious injuries. And uh, you know, in our industry, in construction, and and very similar in the province, you know, the the most uh, predominant serious injuries are fractures, um, concussions, amputations, and those things occur, um, you know, where when people fall, slips, trips, and falls. We often think about, oh, you know, in construction, it's probably like fall off a roof, but in actual fact, uh, like almost 30% of injuries in construction are like just fall to another 
uh, surface, the slip, trip, fall, fall from a ladder. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still seeing very serious injuries are occurring, which for something that seems very simple, um, but it, it can be um, can be extremely, yeah, extremely hazardous. And, uh, and so that's why, you know, even something as simple as housekeeping, we all know, and I just think about my own home, you know, you think about how many times do you walk over that thing on the, on the stairs? Um, but in actual fact, that's a, that's a, that's a tripping hazard. We, we become a little bit complacent sometimes, and so it's, it's a great opportunity to just stop and say, all right, we're going we're gonna to take another look now with a fresh set of eyes and see, you know, what, what hazards may exist in our workplace that we've, we've become, you know, blind to. So, um, you know, so those are typically what we would see in construction in terms of, you know, the, the, the nature of the, the types of serious injuries, um, the occupations in our industry that are certainly um, experiencing the most serious injuries are carpenters and laborers. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's a concern as well. You know, all of these injuries, different severities, of course, recovering from a broken finger is different from a concussion uh, potentially or an occupational disease, which is captured in these numbers as well. But it comes with the price tag. Sometimes I hate putting price tags on, you know, people's health and their well-being, but it does come with the cost. So what are we talking about over the last five years for serious injury claims at Workplace NL? Well, in the construction industry, it's close to $30 million. And, uh, you know, the way the workers' compensation system works, uh, you know, every, every dollar that has to be paid out to an injured construction worker has to be collected from a construction employer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, it's not a cost of doing business. It's like any insurance that if you use it, um, like your car insurance, like your home insurance, um, if you have claims, then your premiums will go up. So, again, we've been fortunate in the construction industry that we've seen, you know, tremendous improvement in uh, in prevention. And so we've seen our workers' compensation premiums actually go down. But that's $30 million that, you know, that's been paid out to injured construction workers. Uh, that's $30 million that's not in our economy. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's a huge number. And if you bring in all the other uh, organizations involved in this, whether it be Trades NL or the Federation of Labor, the total cost there is just shy of $120 million for compensation regarding serious injury. So big money. And, of course, it is. I mean, there's a couple of things that are huge costs inside the world of business. One is training and one is lost time. So yep. it, it's in everyone's best interest for your overall health and well-being, productivity, costs for the employer and the employee if adher- adherence to safety is is probably the number one guiding principle day in and day out. Everyone wants to be productive. Everyone wants to do their job and get home out of it safely. But it comes with a huge cost when it doesn't work that way. I have a a board member who's often quoted as saying, like, let's not forget that when we train a worker to do a job safely, we train them to do it correctly. Yeah. So, you know, there's a huge linkage there in terms of productivity and all those things um, when a worker is informed of how to do a job safely. I mean, I think about years ago, and I'll be telling myself now, but, you know, when I finished university back in the 80s, some of the situations that I put myself in just because I didn't know any better. And, uh, you know, it's not anything I would do today, but I just didn't know because I, I wasn't informed of the hazards. And so that's such, such a key factor. And, uh, and hopefully as part of the, uh, the stand down, uh, construction companies and, 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 and companies in other industries will, will, will take some time. It, it can be five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, um, and just, just gather workers and, and engage with them about health and safety in their workplace. I appreciate the time this morning, Jackie. Thank you. Thanks for your interest, Patty. My pleasure, Jackie. Take care.
Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. It's uh, Jackie Manuel, the CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Construction Safety Association. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. Oh, someone was looking for a number. If you do indeed see something in the Construction Association regarding safety, you can call the uh, uh, Miss Manuel's group, or you can simply call the Newfoundland Labrador Construction Association. Their number is 753-8920. And for uh, speaking about construction and safety, you can go directly to the group that uh, Jackie Manuel represents. Call 739-7000 if you want to report something that you've seen that you deem to be unsafe. Let's go to line number four. Willard, here on the air. Hi there. Hi How there. are you? Oh, okay, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I had a little incident yesterday. I, 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 I understand I can't use any names, but I, is it okay for me to say the name of the... Um, establishment i'm not sure exactly what we're talking about uh to be honest so there was a resident of a support organization that you had a run-in with or something well um okay so for the last few weeks um i've been trying to get a tax issue resolved um i worked um prior to 2020 well 2021 and prior to that for about 20 plus years as a truck driver I had to give up that profession due to uh, health reasons, and this was in Ontario, and I moved home to Newfoundland uh, in 2021, and I I received a letter from CRA basically inquiring about some um, uh, uh, claims for meals and lodging expenses that they needed for me to submit, and uh, so I'm on a fixed income at the moment uh, with AES, and... um, I just I don't have the money to pay for a tax clinic because of the um, the nature of my tax issue. It's not something that most regular tax clinics would look at because it's a little more involving. Like most tax clinics will do basic taxes, but when you're getting into lodging and meals and truck driving expenses and all this kind of stuff, it, it just takes a little more looking at. And most of these tax clinics are usually not equipped for that. But I asked these folks um, at this establishment, um, a nonprofit organization that has a tax clinic, um, if I could get some help. And I was told, probably one of the most ludicrous reasons I've ever heard of, um, that they couldn't help me because I made too much money in the tax year that I'm asking for help with. And I said, how is that relevant here and now? Like, we're talking two years ago. I collected unemployment since then, and I'm currently on AES. So that money that is neither here nor there now. So... Just like, give me the idea what the cutoff would be to be able to avail. And I think we're talking about the gathering place, is it? Well, they were able to help me with my 2022 taxes. Not a problem. Because I, you know, I'm on low income at this point. Mm-hmm. But for 2021 money that I don't have anymore and no longer make, they couldn't help me because I made. So basically what they're saying in their own admission is that I'm being retroactively penalized for a tax service that is free, by the way. It's a volunteer tax service, so there's no fees involved. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I'm, I'm not eligible for this free volunteer service because I made, speaking in the past tense, too much money in the year I'm asking for help with. And I explained to them, I'm not asking you to submit my taxes. I've already done that myself. I said, this is an amendment I need help with. 
just I just want to make sure that the paperwork that CRA needs to see gets pointed in the right direction because I, I'm not familiar with how it works and and I've approached a couple of places and it just it just keeps I keep getting stonewalled and yesterday I was even told by one of the staff members at this organization that if I continued to come there and ask about getting my taxes done that I would be barred from the property which then denies me the ability to get meals because they provide that service there as well. And like, I don't go there asking for anything else. Like I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a humble, modest person. I don't like to ask for things from anyone, but this was a legitimate reason and I just needed a little bit of help. But it seems that they're more willing to help people in need of their drug addictions and stuff more so than they are to step up for someone asking for legitimate help with something valid. Uh, can you, is it possible to give me the financial threshold where you make too much to avail of their services? Where's that cut off? I don't even know what okay. that threshold would be, but on my key four, it says that I made $44,000. Not a huge amount of money. I don't know. Well, I'm going to... a period of a year, it isn't sure. Okay, uh, fair enough. I'm going to give you a number. They do try to connect people who need some tax services help, and I know it's predominantly featured during tax season. I don't know if they can help you today, but I'm going to give, a, give you a number to hopefully get you some help with the Community Sector Council. So you give them a call. They have a toll-free number, and that's the only one they have available that I can find here, and it's one eight six six. Okay, two seconds, Patty. I'm sorry. but uh, That's no problem. Your editor gave. I see my see my pen. One second. Oops. Okay, buddy, go right ahead. Uh, no problem. So it's the community sector council, and their toll free number is one eight six six. Eight six six. Seven five three. Yep. Nine eight six zero. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Let me know if that works, will you? I will. I mean, like, I, I appreciate that help. I mean, that that was all I needed. <laughs> but I just, my, my issue is with the fact that I just felt so uh, put off by an organization that's supposed to be there to help people who are in my situation and like me. But I'm told, you know, like, just the most ludicrous reason for not being able to help me and... and like, I mean, I, I, I mean, the day didn't stop there. I mean, I called AES also looking for some help with certain things. And one of the statements they made to me was that owning a cell phone while you're on a fixed income, a lower fixed income, is considered a luxury. And I, I, I like, that just took me back. I'm like, I've, you know, I lived in Ontario for 23 years, and I know that, and I've been on, let's call it welfare in Ontario. And up there, you can ask for a cell phone, and they'll give you one for free. Yeah, I mean, so a, a cell phone is a bit misleading. Some people might have these whopping big data packages. Someone might have a pay-as-you-go, and it's not exactly... I don't even have that. I have a $25 a month plan that you can't even get here in Newfoundland because I brought it with me from Ontario. Fair enough. I, I do have to get to the break for the newscast, Willard, but you let sure. me know if you have any luck with the Community Sector Council. If not, we'll try to come up with another idea. Sure, man. Thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate that number. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, we are going to talk about some tax issues out in the community of CBS. And then there's a resident of the Churchill Park area not looking forward to the festival. Then we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Ken, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Yes, Ken here. Hi there. I got a call about a story that was in, I'm not sure it was in the shoreline or it was on the webpage. A gentleman, a gentleman was charged for a basement apartment in his house for years. Anyway, the total was a little over $9,000, right? Anyway, he caught him on his texting. And he went to the council and he said, look, he said, you've been charging me for a basement apartment. He said, yes, I have one years and years and years ago, but I have got neither one now. He said, you've charged me. And he said, it, it wasn't even registered, it was, it was done with. And anyway, the council said to him, oh, well, good luck, sir, we're getting your money back. So anyway, he went and he investigated and got into it. And he went to see a lawyer. And the lawyer told him, he said, sir, he said, if it's probably going to cost you more than what you're going to get back from the council. Anyway, the council offered him $3,000. Anyway, he turned around and accepted it. But that's just here in CBS. The same happened in paradise to my uncle. The same thing. 15 years he was paying for the basement apartment. And he finally caught it on his taxes. He went and seen him. Oh, boy, good luck. We'll get your money back. I mean, that's ridiculous, Patty. How many more is this after happening? Bro? So, uh, again, I just want to make sure I'm following along here. He was charged property tax on the basis that he had a basement apartment for rent, when, in yes. fact, that was no longer the case. No. No, no. He accepted $3,000. How much was the additional tax burden over the years? What did it add up to? $9,000. How much, sorry? Over 9000 they overcharged them. Well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a lot of money. So, I mean, there's fundamental things here. You know, whether or not everyone has a par- an apartment registered is one thing, but if at one point you had it registered and it can be absolutely reflected in your your taxes and the source of revenues, so if that can be proved that it was no longer a registered apartment, there was no money coming in the door for a basement apartment, how can the council just simply give them a third of what the tax burden was that was unfairly charged, I wonder? It works, because the lawyer told him, he said, if he goes to court, apparently if we happen to lose... It will cost you more money. But what I'm, I think my point I'm trying to make is people, please, check their taxes if they're getting charged for this kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's more than one or two after doing this. I'm, I'm after hearing a few stories, right? But just get a committee together yourselves. And even if you form some kind of committee and took the council to court. Like, you know, I mean, this is ridiculous to turn around and tell you, oh, good luck with getting your money back. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean that's, I know it's a full blown up story. He read it all out, it was all there, it was all printed. And it was, it, it, I mean, it's not the first one I've heard of it. Like I said, the same thing happened to my uncle in Paradise. Now, my uncle is boiled manner, very calm. He don't want no conflict. That's the way he is, right? But when he found it, they gave him back $1,500. They owed him $12,000. And they told him the same thing. Good luck with getting your money back. Well, well, that makes sense. 
yeah, your, your summary point is always solid advice, is to have a careful look at the bills when they come in, whether it be taxes or anything else, whether it be your cell phone bill or what have you. There can be errors that can be mistakes or they can be not necessarily mistakes, but keeping a close eye on what you're getting charged for is always an excellent idea. You know, we, sometimes we take for granted, we get the bill, there's a look at the total or the minimum payment requirement required and just go ahead and satisfy it when there could be a bunch of errors on any type of bill coming in the door. Oh my God! Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, people are so passe this these day and age that oh well, here you go, pay that. Here we go, go go pay that. Here we go, pay. Boys, look, look at what's coming in through your door. Look at the bills you got to pay and see if we're getting overcharged or anything. A lot of the young people, man, the cell phone bills. You know yourself, they don't even look at them. Okay, phone cell phone bill this month for three hundred fifty dollars. Here we go, let's go pay that. That could be double the cost. It happened to me a couple of times, right? Like hardest. Yeah, I've got a mistake yeah. on a cell phone bill in the past. Yeah, and people just don't. They, I don't know what's wrong. People just don't look at it anymore. They kind of like they just go with the flow. Well, it's, it's solid advice to have a look at the bills because even if we're not talking huge monies in the thousands of dollars, you know, if you've got a $50 mistake, that's 50 bucks less you have to spend on groceries or anything else. So it's worth having a look. Uh, Ken, I'm glad you called about it this morning. Appreciate your time. Sir, I, just urge people, I just urge people to, trick, to uh, check their bills and make sure they're getting charged properly. And one more little thing, the gentleman called in about the fish and stuff for his, grand, for his mother and yeah. stuff. I got a five-year-old mother. She can't go out and get her fish, but she'd love to be able to. Yeah, I'm sure most everyone would love to be able to do it safely, but I'm following up with that one because that one just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's okay. completely unavailable to this his mother-in-law, and the disability designation doesn't recognize things like having Alzheimer's, which could be the reason why you just simply cannot go safely. I totally get where they're coming from. So we'll follow up on that one, Ken, and I appreciate the call. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Right, bye bye. Yeah, keep in mind the bills sounds about right. Uh, let's go to line number seven. Gail, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning to you. Yes, uh, I was previously with a, uh, a TV provider. Uh, as of June 26th, I canceled my services. And uh, each day I used to call to find out where I could get uh, get some of those bags for the put those. Uh, on those things, things into that you send back, those boxes, mm-hmm. and uh, each day I'd call. There's one day I was on the phone four hours, and all I got was music. And finally today, somebody answered the phone after waiting since the 26th of June. I think that's terrible. You know, that's awful poor service. I wouldn't recommend the company to anyone who's going with going to go with a TV service well, I mean, look, the way that it's gone to deal with big companies and a full reliance on having to go through exhausting menus and wait times and the elevator music playing at nauseam, mm. it's really a pain, no doubt about that. Yeah, there was one day in particular I uh, started at 10 o'clock in the morning and I had an appointment for to get my hair done at 1. When I came home at 20 to 5, my husband was still waiting and listening to the music. That's how poor of a service to have. 
Yeah, I had, and I was, once again, this was with a government entity, and I had my, had the phone on. I put it on speaker so I didn't have it up against my ear. I was puttering around the kitchen getting pre- uh, preparations done for supper. Just for yeah. very quickly walked into the back of the house to grab something. By the time I came out, I could just hear them saying, hello, 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 and I didn't make it in time, lost it, and that was after hours waiting. So I understand your frustration, Gail. So now that you've spoken to someone, is it all satisfied? Oh, yes, sir. I hope that there's a lot of people listening and anyone who's uh, uh, planning to go with that provider, hopefully they want because they want to get very good service. We have often called. We've been here as high as three days with no service at all. And when I did get them, I had to tell them that I was here three days with no service and couldn't reach them. So, you know, it's not very good. But I am pleased with the, the company I am with now. Uh, good. I'm glad to hear that because we pay an awful lot of money for things like our television and cell phones and Internet at home. And a bit of customer service goes a long way, no doubt. I appreciate well, your time, Gail. Last, last thought to you. Go sir, ahead. Well, sir, the, the point is, too, I like to make is that uh, my previous provider was uh, charging me more and more every month. So, you know, I could, you gotta be, you, if you were a millionaire, you couldn't keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, I, I dread bill paying day, too. Uh, Gail, I'm off to the break. I appreciate your time. Yeah, and I appreciate you listening to me, sir. Anytime. All Thank the best. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to speak to a resident in the Churchill Park area about the festival that kicks off tomorrow evening. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Michelle, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Actually, enjoy listening to you. Good. <laughs> um, I'm calling. I last year they held a concert in the park in Churchill Square. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for the concerts in the park. I've attended concerts down by Kitty Vitty. Thoroughly enjoyed them. Brings people together. It's a really good time. However, it's the first time last year that our neighborhood actually experienced. What happens when the concerts are over? You have highly intoxicated people, whether it's high on drugs or drinking, they leave their uh, debris as they walk and they leave their debris when they leave. Last year, there was 45, 50 people decided to use the side of my house as a urinal, an area to puke your guts up. Uh, when I came out through my front door to, to take my dog, I, I, you know, see what was going on. One gentleman informed me at the bottom of my steps that he was going to, he was defecating my property, is the polite way of putting it. The only reason why he left, he was going to continue to drop his drawers was he saw a set of pearly whites looking at him as my dog put his head around my legs to let him know, back off. They get highly aggressive, threatening, the whole nine yards. I thought last year was a one-time event till I found out this concert was going, two weekends was going off this this year. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to city council. I said, listen, you need to protect the residents in the area. Told them exactly what happened. Of course, they were all aghast, couldn't believe it. Uh, anyhow, the committee, organizing committee, reviewed my concerns 
and my request for fencing provided in certain areas to prevent them from getting into desk-gate properties belonging to residents. Uh, my the the house next door they were lined up in his driveway. Men were urinating. Females don't care. They'll drop their pants anywhere and expose themselves. They really don't care. They're that intoxicated. Anyhow, city council told me, no, there's nothing they can do. They fulfilled their responsibility, and that if I have a problem with these people, to call the proper authorities. These concerts are going off when RNC are inundated with events downtown. You know, and this is just added pressure. These individuals would not be in our area, only for city council approved. I would never have this problem. Like I said, I've been to the outdoor concerts. They're a ball. I thoroughly enjoyed them. Yeah, so your problem isn't with the music and the course of the concert is the aftermath. Absolutely not. And you meet really even people that are walking to the concert that are you know, not drinking their heads off. you got some people that haven't sneaked a beer and you sort of just nod and, and just don't get caught. That's drinking in public. But, I mean, that's your, your problem. But when they first go to the concert, they're not being aggressive or nasty. They're not trying to run in on your property and use the bathroom or throw up. You know, they're not leaving... Some people will actually walk to the garbage bins and, and throw in their tin cans or their bottle of wine that they're all drinking out of, you know, with their cups. You know, you've got really good people going to these concerts. Oh, yeah, but sure. It's an element after the concert is done, and they are heavily intoxicated. It's a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Yeah, and I don't know how far you could even have the concert organizers' responsibility extend. You know, for the immediate surrounding of the concert grounds, they should be responsible for things like a very quick clean up and those types of things. When someone gets back into the neighborhoods in the Churchill Park area, whether it be on Strawberry Marsh Road, I mean, I lived in that area for years, or whether it be heading the other way towards uh, Maple or Sycamore or anything like that, then I don't even know whose responsibility would be beyond the RNC, for instance, because if someone is... That's not, that wouldn't be fair. Like I said, the RNC are, they are quite busy downtown. Yeah, but who else, for instance, could take care of those things? You know, realistically, what, what other entity can do anything about someone who's willing to do what they've done on your property? Is the question, Obviously, I suppose. if the city can afford to allow this event to go down and tear up this field, that's a soccer pitch that is utilized, very much utilized, and the repairs that have to be done to that field, then they should be required to put security on to make sure these individuals are behaving themselves and just quietly leaving the area. And this is not fair. If not, don't hold the event anymore on Churchill Square. Unfortunately, it's not a big field. It's not like the field that you have down in by Kitty Vitty. It's ideal. That field is not... You, you grew up in the area, you know how big that field is in yep. Churchill Square. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. very big. They've actually reformatted where the stage is this year, too, but you know, yeah. here's what I think about folks who are willing to be a nuisance like that and urinate on your house. If you had a security guard wearing a green City of St. John's shirt, the likelihood of them caring what that person says is very much nil for the most part. Now, some people will say, okay, yes, I understand, and off I go. Uh, if it's my property, and Dave Williams said this to me in my headset, not a terrible idea, is I'd have the sprinkler going all out. There'd be a deterrent. Hey, listen, uh-huh. listen, I was told that if I put my sprinkler on, I'm responsible. I could be charged with assault. If somebody comes up <coughs> on my property and gets falls or walks into a tree and knocks themselves out, 
I'm responsible. Uh, that doesn't. Who I told you that? Invite him in the area. Who told you that? Uh, I don't want to mention any names. I, I apologize, but I would sooner not say. But that's exactly what I was told. If you do that, unfortunately, you can be you could be charged with assault. You are responsible if someone is on your property, uninvited even, and they are injured. I could face being sued. Yeah, but I mean, someone could do that at 12 o'clock lunchtime, and I would think there might be an exaggeration of your liability uh, concerns here, but not to say that that's not a very real and genuine concern that I think all the residents would share. It's one thing for the music to be playing up until 11 o'clock, where, where that's the cutoff time, and you know, I don't live too far from uh, Kitty Vitty now, so when Iceberg's on the go, I can hear every note, and I get it, you know, and it's a, uh, a festival that lasts, and it's a, it's a fun time, and I've attended, and I'm going to Churchill Park next weekend uh, but I won't be one of the people that you've experienced that trouble with that much I know for sure thankfully no, and like I said majority of people that go to this concert they enjoy just like I've enjoyed concerts yeah. but I certainly didn't walk out of a concert in the park and go down and urinate in somebody's driveway or go up on their no, lawn of course not and, you know or go and vomit and that I didn't do that no you know no I didn't do that yeah but the city has thrown up a and said, no, we're not doing a thing. We've done, our responsibility is done. It's nothing to anybody else. You, you've just called. Basically, they told me call police is basically what they've told. And when I said, so these people that you've invited by having this event come in this area, who's liable if they get injured coming on my property uninvited? They just shrugged their shoulders, not ours. Isn't that the case? Nobody wants to take responsibility, right? You know, yeah. they wave their, they shrug their shoulders. Well, we give them the permit and the rest is up to them. A straight, a strange day. Uh, Michelle? I mean, last year you, had, you saw people coming from that concert, Patty, and they were actually singing as they were coming down the road. You know, you got good people, right? But you got that element that's just got to spoil it. Let's hope that it's not the same thing this go around. Uh, people just need to be a little bit more responsible and have a bit more respect. Oh, absolutely you know? agree with you. Absolutely yeah. agree with you. But the city's been promoting it as been a really good event and blah, blah, blah. It's not for everybody. I appreciate the time, Michelle. Thank you. You have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I mean... And you know as well as I do, a bylaw officer or a security guard from a private security company to, number one, generally speaking, the advice for their staff is to don't engage someone who's drunk and potentially dangerous like that. But if you're willing to pull down your drawers on someone's private property to relieve yourself, a security guard with no real authority... You know, it's maybe inside the boundaries of the festival. If you get out of hand, they can kick you out. But once you're out, I mean, you think that these people are going to listen to anybody when they're in that state of mind and willing to behave so disgracefully? Just, I mean, if you're going to the festival, when it's over, just get out of the area. People live there, right? Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, Leo's in the queue. He wants to talk about a road in disrepair out around Cornerbrook. And then, coincidentally, the member for the area, Jerry Byrne, is also in the queue. And he can pick up where Leo le- leaves off. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Leo, you're on the air. 
Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing, off, uh, doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Fine, fine. Uh, I'm on a cell phone uh, of my grad, so can you hear me okay? Yeah, loud and clear. Go right ahead. Perfect. Okay, this is a, a public safety concern, and uh, it, it regards a Bailey Bridge on Glide Lake Road. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the way scales out here between uh, Deer Lake and Pasadena. I, I can picture where they are, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, the road is, is just off from there. It goes in, and uh, the road is not the greatest, but that's not the big issue. The issue is the bridge. Um, just lately, I'm going to say in the last six weeks or maybe before, uh, Kruger uh, went in, and they took the time to go in, and they uh, erected signs. And from what I can remember on the sign, it said, uh, bridge in disrepair, use at own risk. That's fine and dandy, but uh, uh, catchment area for the people that use this particular road and bridge, uh, it's uh, Deer Lake area, Pasadena, Cornerbrook, and that entails like woodcutters, berry pickers, hunters, and cabin owners, all of that. But I'm um, just wondering, like, if, if Kruger took the time and effort to go in to assess the bridge and deem it, you know, in disrepair, why not would they uh, repair it and, and have it done with? Well, even for, their, even for their own personnel to safely navigate it. So is, is this a, an access road that everybody's allowed on? Oh, yes. It, uh, there are uh, quads, side-by-sides, uh, snowmobiles, wintertime. They all use that you know, that particular bridge. And um, it's, 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 it's going to be, you know, a real issue. And I know it's all about, um, you know, covering their own butt sort of thing with, with erecting the signs. But um, my take on it is that if my own property or your property, if you had a, a set of stairs going up to your home and you knew that uh, a couple of them were in, uh, say, weak and they're in disrepair, they could take a 150-pound person, but they might not take a 300-pound person. Uh, but you put up a sign that don't use at your own risk. Uh, I don't know. It's just mind-boggling to me, knowing the amount of monies that comes from our government that goes to Kruger. Uh, I would like to see them just go and, and repair the darn thing and, and have it done with. If not... It's just shame, shame, shame on Kruger. Yeah, I guess it would be solely up to Kruger if it's an access road that they built and operate and maintain. Uh, and if I remember correctly, Kruger, I think, I'll get this confirmed with our next guest, I think Kruger owes us somewhere in the neighborhood of $117 million, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> that would put a nice bridge. But um, <laughs> having said that, like, you know, it, it's, it's um, to me, it's somewhat ridiculous. So, like, if... Uh, like, I'll go back and, and reiterate, like, if, if they can put their personnel going in, checking on those things, well, if, if you see he's in disrepair, fix it. Like, uh, come on, it is, it's not going to bankrupt them. It'll bankrupt us as a, as a province, but, you know, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, no question. Uh, I appreciate this. We'll see what the uh, member for your region has to say about this particular disrepair, uh, the state of disrepair of this particular bridge and who's responsible and what timeline should be applied. I appreciate the heads up, Leo. Uh, no problem. Uh, the other thing is, like with those wood access roads and, and stuff, uh, Patty, uh, nine times out of ten, Kruger don't pay for that. 
It comes from the government um, where they get funding for uh, for uh, putting in new roads and, and putting in new bridges and all of that stuff. Kruger's just the one that takes the credit for it in a lot of cases. So uh, I would love to have to call you back in two, three weeks and say, man, oh, man, Kruger really stepped up. Kudos to them. But I'm not going to hold my breath. We'll see what we can figure out, Leo. Thanks for the time. No problem. And tell Jerry to get on it. <laughs> well, he's next. You just told him yourself. <laughs> well, okay, Jerry. I hope you're listening, man. There he is. We'll talk to the minister right now. Thanks, Leo. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. I'm trying to recollect that uh, loan agreement between the provincial government and Kruger. It's about a decade old. I believe it started with $90 million. And now I'm going to take the the jury here before we get to the break. Started with $90 million, was extended to $110 million. I remember correctly, none of the principal has been repaid. If Once again, if my memory serves, maybe some payment on interest maybe have come the way of the provincial coffers, but I'm pretty sure that loan is still outstanding. Let's go to line number one and say, Good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for so much for having me on and to respond to, hopefully, a, a few issues that were in the queue. But a lot to unpack there on that one. Um, uh, I don't know exactly the bridge that that's being referred to, but this is not, unfortunately, not an uncommon issue in that when Cornerbrook pulpit paper goes in, conducts woods operations, uh, builds roads, conducts woods operations and then no longer when the trees are when the wood is harvested they obviously they don't really require the woods access anymore so sometimes they actually just simply decommission the bridge they actually remove it so because they don't want to extend the liability there but um yeah that's a that's a bit of a tough one in the sense that it is cornerbrook pulp and paper that owns them it's not cornerbrook pulp and paper that uh, it that gets grants for them because Patty, this is one of the issues that occurred when Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper was under a U.S. Department of Commerce challenge for subsidies. Uh, there was a huge tariff put on newsprint from Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper by the U.S. government. And one of the issues that was identified and, uh, and addressed was how much money subsidies, government uh, funding, is getting to subsidize Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper. And the U.S. government had to withdraw their, uh, their action because they don't get any money for Woods Roads. It's one of the issues on, on Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper lands. They are responsible for all of the costs related to forestry management. And so they, it's only on Crown lands where we, um, we, we do provide funds for forestry access roads and other things. So that's a bit of a complicating issue. But you know what, listen, it's, it's, I will certainly undertake to do my best to, to see if there's something that can be done there, recognizing that this is not associated with the loans. The loans that were granted to Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper were for improvements to the powerhouse, the pen stocks, and to upgrades in the mill itself. And, um, yeah, so that's that's where that money was directly targeted. So can you or your staff uh, help us understand whether or not this is Kruger-owned lands and or Crown lands? Because there, therein lies the rub with what could be done about a bridge in disrepair. 
Yeah, I didn't actually catch which particular area where where the bridge was. If you uh, if you could uh, could grab it because I was actually on the line just trying to get some details about this, and um, but I I wasn't able to catch that. Did you? Yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with the the, the local uh, Glide Lake or something, Dave. Is that what he said? If not, we'll re-listen to it and we'll send it along. Yeah, yeah Glide Lake Road. Sounds great. Okay. Yep, gotcha. I, Quickly I'm be about myself. the loans. So, if I remember correctly, we loaned them, and the loan was extended to $110 million. And at the exact same time, a couple of years later, again, memories sometimes a bit fuzzy here, but Kruger even modified pension plans. They touted the fact they've spent so about $800 million over the years to invest into their plant, and consequently, the government decided to extend this loan to them. Have they ever repaid any of it? Yeah, there have been payments uh, that have been made. The paper industry, of course, has been in a little bit of a slump lately. Uh, but uh, I think the minister responsible for that, both the minister of finance and the minister of forestry, would be in a better position to be able to respond to the financial aspects of that loan guarantee. But what I do know is that the loan itself was also tied directly to the um, the powerhouse, the uh, the assets of the uh, power operations of Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper and Deer Lake and Watson's Pond and other areas. So there's kind of a guarantee that's been built into all of this that should there ever be a default, God forbid, uh, that uh, first draw comes whatever, you know, in terms of the arrangements that have been made to buy the assets, the very, very valuable assets of Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper, uh, the power assets would be f- the first ones that we would recoup all that money from. So I feel very comfortable that the money is secure. Um, we, it's a big employer in my community. It's a big employer across the entire province in terms of the forestry sector. So I think it is fair-minded and responsible to try to boost that up. But it's also very responsible and fair-minded to make sure that taxpayers are protected. And that's how taxpayers are protected. And the last one pops in my mind is an application from Kruger to burn tires to generate power and heat for their operations. Uh, anyway, th- no need to go down that yeah, road. That's an old one. I that's an old one. I haven't one. seen that one around for quite some time. So I don't want to create a, a, a bit of a stir there that that one is an active application because I'm not aware that that is. Oh, it isn't. It, it was widely, widely and ra- loudly rejected. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quickly, do you want to make some comment about a ruling brought forward by the Commissioner of Legislative Standards regarding yeah. Premier Fury's fishing trip with his father to Rifflin Hitch Lodge, owned by John Risley, you know, in and around the time frame we're doing away with the ban, uh, the moratorium on wind, and then, of course, now with World Energy GH2, you know the story as well as everyone else does. Yeah. The Commissioner said there's no evidence to prove that there was anything untoward. And key for most was who paid for the trip. Now, apparently, with the receipts being delivered by the Premier, his wife gave it to him as a gift. You're, uh, you wanted to say something about it. I'm not sure what it is. Well, just simply that, you know, I want to say thank you to Ann Chafe for doing an a important piece of work. Like, it is important for public confidence to be able to get these matters resolved. They were resolved. There was no conflict. There was no, uh, there's no loss of perceived or real integrity by the Premier, which I think is really important for people to know and to have confidence in that the there's nothing that the premier did which would cause anything or anyone around him to lose confidence in his integrity uh, that's really important but really patty what i think was kind of really important about this report from anjave was that she went and took this a little bit of a step beyond and she gave parliamentarians legislators like ourselves the 40 of us 
she gave us a little lesson, which I think was very timely, which is be careful of each other's reputation. Be careful of the accusations you make. Be careful about how you do this, because it really should be based on evidence and not simply conjecture. And I think, in my opinion, she went a little bit step further and said, because don't weaponize this process. Don't make it a political process. If you have a concern, file your complaint and let it be investigated. Don't actually make the complaint itself the objective. Because sometimes there's an old saying in politics, which is accusations appear on page one, rebuttals appear on page five, and retractions appear on page 30. And I think Ann Chafe did a really, really good job, and I'm not commenting whatsoever on the right of a member to do what's in, you know, what they, what's available to them. I'm just simply saying that it's worth a read by the general public. I think the report, and when it was reported, uh, that may have been a little bit underreported in that some of the things that Ann Chafe had to say about her own reflections about how parliamentarians should really be aware of and respectful of the reputations of, of each other. And because when we're not, we lower all of our reputations. On the federal and that, I think, is the, is the sure. side message of what Ann had to write. Uh, on the federal front, it's non-existent. Um, you know, if, uh, if I was speaking to the Premier here, and I'm not going to get you or ask you to speak for him, but, you know, the, the collegiality issue, okay. But there's also politicians understanding the optic issues. You know, John Risley's Lodge was probably not the best idea, and when asked for receipts to not deliver them, because as you point out, when the Premier said, no, I'm not going to do that, there's going to be inevitably a ton of people that will not read Ann Chafe's report and maybe not even follow the news story, so now they simply think that there was something corrupt going on. So optics are just decision-making issues that politicians should be as aware of as the public and the uh, the opposition parties should be aware of people's reputations and stuff. I just think that's the nature of the beast. We're talking about human nature, which is pretty unpredictable. Well, actually, not really. Uh, very, very quick thought on that, uh, Minister Berman, because I have one quick question before I have to go. Sure. I think the report says, do not weaponize. This is my opinion. It says... If you have a concern, file it and let the process work because you're absolutely right. Once the, the, you know, the, the whole conversation begins, there's, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that you, you know, I'm a public, uh, I'm a public guy. You're a public guy. You, you are on the airwaves. People can challenge our integrity. Um, but is it really the right process to say every time that I want to dig into your life, I can say to you, you're going to put forward the receipts of the car that you just bought. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. That's a little bit of a slippery slope. And I think what the ethics commissioner, the integrity commissioner said was, in my opinion, what she said was, if you have a concern, file your concern and I will deal with it. But in the meantime, don't weaponize this office. Don't weaponize the reputation. Don't weaponize the opportunity to impugn someone's integrity by making it a very, very public without a reasonable basis of evidence. And that's, I think, what the lesson is here, because let's repeat once again, there has been no, no substance to any challenge to the Premier's integrity here whatsoever, and it's found by a very, very reasonable person who has no dog in this hunt, whose only job is is to, you know, just to find the truth for the truth's sake, and working in the rules and operations that, she's, that she has available to her, created by parliamentarians, and that, I think, is the lesson 
without moving this any further, our Premier's integrity is 100% confirmed and intact. Okay, and as a member of caucus, of course, that's your position, but when we talk about ethical walls and things that are mercurial or tangential or hard to grasp, or it's not, you know, it's not a, a, a wall where I can look at the bricks and mortar, these are things that just make it difficult for the general public. There's a level of cynicism amongst the electorate that is clear, and to understand it and to recognize it, acknowledge it, and make decisions based on the reality of cynicism is also so important here it really truly yeah, is sometimes creating a whip for your own tail yeah okay very quickly and i do have to go uh last time okay. we spoke it was about you said that no ukrainian ukrainian refugees are living in social housing we do know the issue regarding hotels but are there any ukrainian refugees receiving newfoundland labrador housing subsidies living somewhere else no, not that I'm aware of. I'll uh, certainly check that particular detail. But no, I, I do know that there may be um, a, a couple of families that the city of St. John's may have invited into some social housing, but I'm not aware of any uh, any rate subsidies, wage, uh, rent subsidies offered by Newfoundland Labrador Housing. That would be a question. Uh, the, the Association for New Canadians would be the conduit for that kind of thing, but they have not reported to us that any of their Ukrainian clients, their, uh, those under their charge, have uh, have been in that situation. So one of the things that has been come up, you know, and having that information out there is very important for confidence-wise in, in this process. There was a situation where the Association for New Canadians did have to come in and say, listen, you've been in the hotel a little long. We are case managing you. We are working with you. You are working. We would really like you now to get out in the community. And there was some resistance by some Ukrainians at first because there were, you know, that after coming from a war situation, that which is definitive and guaranteed becomes a lot more comfortable and confident for them. But there was, like, for example, Patty, there was one family that was there. And I don't like to talk about this because I don't want to, to, to dwell on a negative. But there was one family who was there living in the hotel that were there for a little bit of an extended period of time and when we're asked to leave they you know and said it's time for you to get out you've been working now they went and bought a home so i mean that's a great news story it's not a negative story it's a great news story the ukrainians are really really integrating well into our into our communities i appreciate the time thank you minister thanks brother take care bye-bye jerry byrne is the minister of immigration of course the member for cornerbrook let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number one wayne you're on the air Good day, sir. How you doing? Couldn't be better, Wayne. How about you? <laughs> now that I got somebody that I was looking for since about 1982. <laughs> uh, remember I called your show about, uh, I think it was last week, and uh, mentioned I was looking for a veteran over in the uh, Goulds area, uh, Dennis Dunn. Dennis and, Dunn. Uh, yeah, I remember the call. Yeah, and I guess his mom was listening to the show, and she passed the message on, and he called you guys right on. So we had a grand old chat about the old days, <laughs> even though we're both not that old ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's great. You know, sometimes it just works like that here on this program. Uh, I'm not going to take any credit for it because you put the plea out and Dennis's mom was listening. So I think that's absolutely brilliant. How's Dennis doing? Oh, he's doing pretty good. Uh, he's doing real good. Uh, great to have a chat with him and find out what he's been up to for the last 40 years. But, uh, yeah, he's doing pretty good. Uh, now I'm just missing two guys from Hamilton, Ontario, two brothers, Tom and Jack McCord. <laughs> and the last time I talked to them was in 1980. 
and they're both naval veterans as well. What are their names? Tom and Jack McCord. Tom and Jack McCord, the McCord brothers. Tom and Jack McCord. Yeah. Oh, they were tough football players, let me tell you, back in the day. We have plenty of listeners in Ontario. I'm not going to be that surprised if and when someone from Ontario who might know the McCords uh, gives us a shout. I get emails from people in, in Ontario all the time. Uh, so wait, is Dennis still around here? Is he living in the ghouls or somewhere close by? Yeah, he's uh, he's living in the St. John's area. He's been over there since he retired. He, when he got out of the Navy, he went looking for a job and snagged a good job with the government over there. And he has a beautiful family from talking to him, a couple of little girls, kids, whatever, and uh, he's doing very well. I'm glad to hear it, and I'm really pleased to know that you're able to reunite with Dennis. And thanks to his mom for tuning in, and good morning to her if she happens to be listening again this morning. Wayne's great story. I'm glad it worked out. Anything else you want to say before we say goodbye? No, sir. I just love going to the Rock and enjoying my time when I'm there. Cheers. Look forward to having you back. Cheers. Bye. Welcome, Wayne. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, I was just out picking raspberries. You say raspberries or raspberries, by the way? Raspberries, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, we all do. Yeah. So, somebody corrected me the other day. We're not from the province, but anyway. Um, just a couple of things before I get to the main thing. Uh, regarding your comments on the oil company, the 200 million, uh, 300 in royalty we uh, gave them, and uh, 200 investment, 200 million, 500 million, half billion dollars. And we're not getting very much from them in terms of information and so on. I, 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 to me, it shows who's running the show and who feels they've got the leverage in this. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, I mean, the reality is, for stuff like operational concerns, if we're not talking about oil spills or we're not talking about uh, not adhering to regulatory standards, that's one thing. But in their private operations, it's not like they normally owe us any information on this front, but this, uh, this circumstance is different. The work should have been done here, or a lot more of the work should have been done here to begin with. The $200 million should buy a little bit of information. $300 million in royalty relief is a fairly generous uh, offering to a company with profits of $21 billion last year. So, you know, sometimes I get why private sector companies, they don't always answer every step of the way on some of their in- in-house operations. But in this case, a bit of info, you know, on top of they backed out the production for 2023 at that oil field. If they're floating it back out there now, why do we not have any understanding about what the future might look like? I mean, that's it. Not looking to get into their books and, you know, look for state secrets, just fundamentals. Well, anyway, uh, it, 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 those people who come on and talk about the province and, and the country being anti-oil, it's, uh, it always leaves me uh, kind of chuckling. Did you see the news, uh, just before I get to the main thing, you see the uh, thing from Hawaii on, on the island of Maui? 36 people dead so far. Jumping into the ocean, yeah. uh, villages being burned and so on. It just, 
the misery continues and it's in all parts of the world i mean that's one of the most beautiful places in the world from i haven't been there but from what they tell me right i haven't either but i mean the visuals are stunning and the story i mean some of the videos that i've seen and the uh, not only of the fire itself but people jumping into the water and that's their only place to find safe refuge is extraordinary 36 people are dead that was as of when we went live here this morning i don't know if that's changed since and and the the cause the main thing is the western part of the island has a drought you know where that's from and as a result it can burn easily and fast anyway i want to talk about uh what I feel how lucky we are to be born in Canada as opposed to our the greatest nation in the world to, to, to ourselves. Two stories that uh, especially follow the thing on guns, because it always boggles me what's going on there. You know that the Republicans talk about it as a mental health crisis, and we uh, we need to address that. It's not guns, it's more uh, a mental health thing in the state. You've heard that several times, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. The, uh, a reminder, when... Uh, in 2016, when they got in, the Republicans controlled the presidency, the Congress, and the Senate. The very first law that they passed, they repealed the Obama law that said that certified people, insane people, could not buy or own guns. That was the very first law that the Republicans repealed. Now, can you believe that in light of what they say about mental health? Yes, I can. I mean, this, I've, I find American politics extremely frustrating, but, you know, like many things in the world of the political arenas, it's about money. And if they have so many members representing their party in both seats, both, uh, both parts of the Congress, Congress itself, House of Representatives and the Senate, and they get money from organizations that are pro-gun, the NRA notably, then there's no coincidence that these are the types of laws and or repeals that they put forward. And the whole bit about, well, Second Amendment, for the love of God, for something that was written all those years ago to have no concept of trying to modernize reflect the reality of modern day is extraordinary to me it just really truly is and the ones where you know every time someone writes on social media about democracy and the united states just to be rebutted with the pedantic it's a constitutional republic for the love of god once again the reductive thinking in that country I feel bad for uh, the bulk of Americans who aren't like that, but I guess the echo chamber that is social media really kind of amplifies the divide and the nonsense and hard to know what everyday folks and everyday communities really think about that stuff because the loudest voices with the most ridiculous things to say, they get amplified and their opinion becomes you know, representative of everybody who supports one party or another. It, it's madness, pure madness. Well said. Do you see the, the ad? Uh, they've got an AR... 15 or 14, I'm not sure. It's a junior type advertised for use by children. Uh, It's a lightweight thing that uh, they had a little five-year-old girl, I think it was, holding the thing with her father uh, hanging over her, showing her how to hit the target. Can you believe that they're they're actually going to get these things into the hands of people, uh, children, disabled and that? lightweight guns, uh, assault weapons. But anyway, just uh, that's money again talking, right? Well, I, I can't believe it. Uh, there's more guns than humans in the country. You know, and then the 
there was uh, aftermaths of mass uh, mass shootings, which is commonplace, and there's members with AR-15 lapel pins <laughs> walking into Congress. It, it's again, it's mind-boggling. I've had hard enough time trying to digest the political discourse in this country, but when you look at what's shaken down there, it's really quite something, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, and I haven't brought up any of this on the show for obvious reasons, but with the indictments and the charges and the potential for there to be uh, real criminal justice brought to bear here against the 45th president of the United States, things are going to get extremely dodgy and potentially extremely dangerous. So I keep a ear to it, but I have to do myself a favor. Like, I don't watch cable news anymore. I, I just can't do it. And I, you know, I can only keep a half an ear to it because... I've got a lot of stuff going on here, and there's lots of things happening in the province, lots of the stuff happening in the country, and that country just kind of irritates me more than amuses me, so I, I don't pay much attention these days. Two, two, two other that, that in comparison to Canada, because this is what I'm looking at, how lucky we are not to be living there. The judges of the Supreme Court, two or three of them, uh, four of them actually, Republican-appointed uh, uh, judges, are accepting gifts large bribes, I call it, from wealthy uh, businessmen and so on. So basically, these are people who bring uh, cases before the Supreme Court so they can get favorable rulings. Can you can you think of that ever happening in, in Canada? I certainly can't. Well, thankfully, our Supreme Court isn't as politicized as the United States. Uh, people, people are appointed to by different governments, but it never has that feel or flair like the American uh, highest court. And, uh, of course, you talk about Clarence Thomas, notably, and the stories just keep coming. There's a report just a couple of days ago, ProPublica, and it's scathing. And most people who are on that side of the political spectrum, they couldn't care less. It's, again, it is so much about the party and very little about the country. It's just so ingrained in the Americans. Anyway, I don't even want to talk about it, but I'll let you finish up. Go ahead. And the last uh, couple of comparisons that I see, uh, one of the major parties, can you imagine if the progressive of the conservative party had, had the same line on climate change as the Republicans do in the States? Your major party was still denying that this is man-made. So the problem is not just man-made gases. The problem is half the country just about... Uh, saying it's not man-made and we don't need to do a lot about it. And the last comparison would be the religious group, the Bible Belt and so on. We've, we've got some of that here in Canada. Sure we do. But to have these people in those uh, numbers, in those states, that look upon the, that former president as, 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 as almost uh, the return of Jesus Christ... Uh, some of our people who go down there, by the way, who attend these churches, come back infected. The number of Trumpers that come back to to, to Newfoundland, uh, having bought into that stuff they, they get in church, I guess, down there, amazes me. But the comparisons are, are, are such that many of the Scrabble players from the States, when they know I'm from Canada, they say... Can we can we come up there? We're, we're or or we we intend to to come soon. You know. Well, there's more level-headed Americans than we get portrayed on the news. The news does a terrible job on this stuff too. It's you know pick the most extreme point of view from one side or the other and put that out as the the generalization of everyone in the party. We're not so so bad about it like that in this country. But that's you know I think the media and social media has proven to be a failure of an experiment. That's what gets amplified is the most extreme position from one party to another 
and that's just how it goes. And curiously, now there's a fellow calling from Ohio who wants to respond to you, Charlie, and we'll get to him right after this break. I appreciate your time. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, yeah. Do you want me to take Zach right here, Dave, before we go, and then we'll come back to Jordan? Okay, we got it. Hold on. Uh We'll take the break right now. Is that what you're saying? Let's take a break. We'll come back. Jordan Wright's there. He's the Mon lead for the 2025 Canada Summer Games coming up, of course, and Mon plays an active role given the refurbishment of the Aquarina and the new track facility and the turf facility right there on the campus grounds. We'll speak to Jordan, and then Zach is in Ohio, and he's calling to respond to what he heard from Charlie. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Zach in Ohio. You're on the air. Hi. How are you doing today? Doing great. How about you? Uh, good. I was just calling in real quick. Um, I heard part of the show, and I, I live smack dab in the middle of MAGA country uh, here in Ohio, and, and I've spent a lot of time in Canada, and up in Newfoundland, actually, and the people there, the difference between the two people is that the people in Canada value life a lot differently than we do. Um, you're right about social media amplifying the worst among us here in America, but the Second Amendment people will never give up their guns it's almost impossible to change the constitution here and the political violence will only escalate with the trump indictments coming this next year what i find remarkable about the full non-stop unrelenting adherence to the constitution is we're talking about amendments amendments so that word can't be extrapolated to amending amendments it just seems so nonsensical to me look i get trying to the founding father to the conservative people here the founding fathers are right up there they're they're considered infallible so there's no you can't argue against all they have to say is the founding fathers wanted it this way so there's no argument against that that's the way they look at it so we can never change the constitution so that's what we're dealing with here yeah and as i admitted charlie I mean, I do keep an eye on and an ear to what's going on in the United States. And as someone who's living in Ohio, like my thought, and I hope I'm not being convinced by social media nonsense, that things may get a lot worse before they even get remotely better. Let's just hypothetically say that there's a conviction in some of the charges that have been uh, alleged against uh, Donald Trump. And if some of them are the more, more serious ones, if there's ever any thought that the man ends up doing time in a prison, what do you foresee the outcome to be on the ground? Because if I'm reading the tea leaves properly, uh, it's really quite dangerous. It sounds utterly cracked, to be honest. Yeah, well, there was a fellow that was just, uh, uh, I don't want to use the incorrect term here, who was uh, killed uh, by the FBI because he was posting on social media threatening Joe Biden. That kind of thing is going to escalate tenfold, uh, especially if Trump is convicted of something. Um, I, I know my country. I live, again, right in the middle of MAGA County, and not everybody who voted for Trump was a bad person, but it can only get worse unless he gets off scot-free. But other than that, the political violence will escalate. So, And I'm sorry to say that. So. Yeah, and that guy who was shot by the FBI, the unfortunate part of that story, and that was in the state of Utah, I'm pretty sure, is we don't know anything else about it. So the assertion now was that the FBI are gunning down people who dare to say anything about Donald Trump or the Manhattan District Attorney. His name eludes me at the moment. But, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's yeah, where we are, isn't right. it? 
Yeah, th- exactly. Yeah. That's where we are. Yeah. The headlines are the story. You know, and I know people are busy and we're trying to surf through a lot of stuff in a day-to-day basis. And so the headline is all we, all many people read. And consequently, that's what they tr- they deem to be the so-called gospel truth on matters around politics and politicians. It's, it's uh, a sight to behold. Yeah, 100%. I'll let you go after this, but I, I just want to reiterate that I, I do love my country, and there's great people here, but I, I wish that in one respect that we were a lot more like uh, like Newfoundlanders, especially when it comes to caring for your neighbor and, and uh, respect for human life. So, And I don't hate the states. You know, some Canadians probably do say that out loud, that they have no time or patience for Americans or the country. I don't feel that way at all. I had an aunt and uncle, they're uh, all now since passed, unfortunately, but we had direct family relations with the United States. I've had many a pleasant excursion to different parts of the United States. And so... I know that maybe, just maybe, this is all about the new style of aggressive uh, politics and rhetoric and hyperbole, but again, the social media has really betrayed us. I think what sounded to be like a really useful tool has been weaponized, and that's really led to some disastrous political uh, discourse. But, Zach, I'm glad you tune in from the state of Ohio, and I really appreciate you making time for the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking my call, and you guys have a good day. The very same to you, bud. All the best. All right, there you go. Caller from uh, Ohio. Uh, let's go to line number six. Take warning to the Mun lead on the 2025 uh, Canada Summer Games. That's Jordan Wright. Good morning, Jordan. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's lovely to be here. Thanks so much for uh, having me. Great to have you on. So it feels like we got lots of time to prepare for 2025, but in reality, when we're talking about facilities and constructions right around the corner, how confident are we that we'll hit all the timeline targets? So not only ready for the games, but ready for the athletes to help prepare on the facilities they're going to use. Yeah, you're very right. I mean, time goes by pretty quick. And uh, we mentioned the other day that it wasn't too long ago we were preparing the bid documents just to uh, actually secure the Canada Games coming here in 2025. So we certainly have a bit of runway ahead of us. And uh, the good news is now that we've got our contract awarded for the Acarina project. So that work is uh, commencing sort of imminently. And obviously, I think anyone who's driven down the parkway can see that the uh, project being managed by the city there is uh, well underway after they got the contract awarded in the spring. And then from other preparation standpoint, obviously, my scope of work relates to Memorial University. There's lots of venues outside of Memorial getting ready. But uh, we're getting ready and planning right now at Memorial, <coughs> in particular, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, <coughs> in, partic- in particular, sorry, uh, we're looking at the Athletes' Village, where all this, the athletes will be staying during the games and also looking at the food services. So uh, there's lots of work to be done, but fortunately we have two years, but two years is not a lot of time uh, when you're dealing with this many projects. What's the timeline, let's say specifically the track and field complex, to have that ready for practice? Yeah, so again, uh, that one is being managed by the city, so they are hoping to have some, uh, I'll say, preparatory test events, if possible, um, before the 2025 Games, but uh, I would say that the city's probably best to speak specifically to that schedule. What has to be added to campus to accommodate the Athletes' Village, or is it simply using facilities that are already in place, but just changing, refurbishing to accommodate the athletes and their coaches? 
Yeah, so it's a little bit of uh, both there. Uh, we're certainly using existing facilities. So um, all of our residents that are uh, down around Peyton College, McPherson College, as well as the uh, Burton's Pond Apartments, um, there is some work required uh, to get them ready in terms of some improvements. We're looking at some lighting. We're looking at accessibility projects, uh, thinking about paths of travel for athletes that are going to be moving between the Athletes Village and other locations on campus for competition. Uh, but then we're also, and we mentioned this the other day, uh, we need to accommodate a lot of athletes. And so we are looking at some spaces that will get converted into uh, bedrooms uh, that aren't currently bedrooms. And we've got some uh, bunk beds coming from PEI. Uh, so largely the Athletes Village will remain sort of status quo in terms of facilities, but there are some upgrades that are being planned uh, to improve sort of quality of life and accessibility for sure. What number of athletes are we anticipating? Yeah, so the number we're saying is approximately 5,000. Yeah. Um, as you can appreciate, uh, that number will be in flux a little bit right up until just before the games. Uh, but basically, we have to do a turnover uh, between both weeks of the games. So we're thinking about 23 or 2,400 athletes week one and then a similar number week two. So uh, there's a pretty big production that needs to happen uh, on that turnover day to uh, welcome our week two athletes as we uh, say goodbye to the week one athletes. So we know that you've uh, formed an internal steering committee what about best practices for other host cities uh, my son Jack uh, participated in the Winnipeg games we of course attended do you have conversations with other facility organizers and infrastructure concerns and how it was done here accommodations food service all that stuff are you learning from others Yes, 100%. And I will say from an overall project management methodology, uh, certainly you want to tap into the lessons learned of others. So we've been very fortunate uh, to date to have some good partners at the University of Prince Edward Island and Brock University to help us along our journey to talk about lessons learned, to talk about things that they wish they had thought of two years out rather than two days out. Interestingly enough, uh, printers on campus is one of the things that turned out to be a bit of a challenge in uh, one of the locations. And then also thinking about training transportation and how you get athletes in and out of the facilities and to the competition sites. So I am happy to say that we are tapping into lessons learned from other uh, jurisdictions and other universities that have hosted uh, in the past, for sure. Uh, is the Aquarine under your auspices, auspices or authority? Yes, so the Aquarine is being managed by our facilities management group uh, internally at Memorial. So we know, look, there was, it was clear and evident that the Aquarina in its current status was not up to national standards to host these types of competitions. We're talking about diving boards and platforms and bulkheads and clocks and those types of things. That work sounds pretty extensive. So when is it tentatively scheduled to close the Aquarina and what's the tentative amount of time we expect it to be closed? Yeah, so I mentioned there the other day that we just awarded the contract, so we're going through kind of the uh, award process right now to get the contractor on the ground. And so handover of the schedule is sort of in progress. So once we have the schedule from the contractor, we'll be able to speak a bit more definitively about timelines. We have put it out there that the facility will be closing uh, in early September. That'll likely be the first week of September. And the Acarina management uh, has been communicating to clients, general public, uh, swim clubs, etc., and once we have that scheduled, they'll be communicating further about the timeline and return to service. The general plan right now is that we're hoping to have athlete training uh, resume prior to general public use of the facility. Obviously, we want to make sure that uh, clubs can get back in and start their preparations for the 2025 games and other competitions, and also realizing that it's really the only dive tank in the province, so it's really important to get that turned back over for athlete training uh, as soon as we 
can. And like I said, as soon as we have that contract or schedule from the contractor, uh, we'll be communicating further updates. What's the uh, dollar amount of the contract? Uh, the construction value was uh, 15.2 million uh, before taxes, and I think the uh, the province had indicated that they committed uh, globally around 24.6 million for uh, the project to support the Akron as well as some upgrades in the fieldhouse. Is there any forecast about how this will extend the life and uh, usability of the Akron? Of course, built for the 1977 games, as was the Greenbelt Tennis Club. So, how long do we think we've extended the life of the Akron with this work? Yeah, I mean, it is really an extensive uh, refresh to the facility. Um, I don't have a specific number in terms of useful life or anything, but I can say that with the systems that are being uh, put in place and with the upgrades to sort of competition uh, experience and also some modernizing, like we're getting a new family change room there, it certainly brings it up to, as you said, a national standard, but it's also going to be a standard that's uh, well accepted and I think welcomed by the community for many years to come. Uh, Last word, anything else you'd like to tell us this morning, Jordan, while we have you? I think just generally speaking, again, we're really excited about this opportunity. I know we're two years out, but there's a lot of work ahead of us. Um, At Memorial, we're looking forward to further engaging with our students, faculty and staff over the fall and continuing preparations with the host society toward welcoming Canada to our campus in 2025. And as we just talked about, This is really an excellent opportunity to refresh community facilities like the Ac Arena. There's going to be uh, new leading sport facilities just next door with the Fortis Canada Games Complex. And really for Memorial, raising awareness and a recruitment opportunity for students and varsity programs. And so really, we're looking forward to completing meaningful academic projects, completing some work around campus that will really have benefits uh, for years to come beyond the Games. And, you know, it's always busy at Memorial, but 2025 in particular, we're really excited because it's also our anniversary so uh, there'll be lots of special events and programming happening throughout the year but certainly around the games as well can you give us an example of uh, academic opportunities that will be explored here yeah, so this is something that we really, talking about lessons learned, uh, Brock University did a great job of this, uh, where they looked at programming and research opportunities, teaching and learning opportunities, and public engagement projects. So we've identified some opportunities now to move forward into the fall, and we'll be sharing more information, but it could be adding an element of sport to a curriculum. So you might be taking a marketing course, as an example, and none of this is confirmed or anything, but maybe we take a slant and look at sport marketing, as an example, or how we tie that into Canada Games. It could also be a research project or working with a community organization. So we're just getting started with sort of an academic coordinator on campus to start talking about these projects and ideas uh, into the fall, and Brock really did a great job uh, a couple of years ago in their lead-up to the Games, and we're really learning from them, having conversations with them uh, really every day. I appreciate the time this morning, Jordan. Uh, Stay in touch, keep us in the loop, and good luck. Thanks so much, Patty. Really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. Talk again soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Jordan Wright. Mon lead for the 2025 Canada Summer Games. Time for the 11.30 news. When we come back, Connie and Juan, you're next. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go. Line number two, Juan, you're on the air. Oh, yeah. Hi, Patty. I hope you're doing well today. Doing great. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. As an American, (laughs) I just um, wanted to say something that I think uh, is uh, very important for um, all of your listeners to um, 
I mean, you know, keep in mind, um, it's going to involve a little bit of math, so we're going to have to get our pencils out. But um, before I get into that, I do want to say that I have done something very similar to you. Um, I have consciously cut back, you know, on the amount of um, of cable news, you know, that I watch at, at our house first thing in the morning. We turn on MSNBC. It's basically on the whole day and, and everything. But, um, you know, I, I have cut back, but, um, you know, as a licensed um, attorney in the States, I still work full time remotely. Um, I'm very in, interested in the legal issues, you know, that are coming up as, and everything like that. So I do keep um, uh, up to date on that. So, um, um, but, um, uh, and then um, I do share the concern, and with me, it's, it's just a degree of sadness with um, the individual who was calling in and made comments about the current state of affairs, you know, with guns and everything in the States. Um, but here's a part that I wanted to emphasize um, and, and with the numbers, the overwhelming majority of Americans, they are anti-gun, anti-NRA, one hundred, very much in favor of a ban on assault rifles, common sense background checks, and everything. And if everybody's ready <laughs> with their uh, pencils and calculators, this is what people need to keep in mind. If you go 100% of the electorate in the states, and if you, on a conservative point of view, have 33% Democrats, 33% independents, 33% Republicans, you'll be within the ballpark. If, if people do uh, due diligence um, and research, they'll see the independents now are maybe around 40%, you know, but Let's just go with 33%, 33%, and 33%. You know, and you have 90% plus of the of the Democrats um, uh, are are hardcore, and they're going to vote for Biden. Um, let's switch over to the Republicans. There's at least 15% inching up towards 20% of Republicans like Liz Cheney, the Bush family, and if people do their research, they will look into the people who um, began the organization called the Lincoln Project. And their only reason to exist was to make sure that Donald Trump was not reelected. So let's have at least 15 percent um, Republicans who will never back Trump. So, so let's give them 85 percent. So here and then, you know, 60 to 70 percent of independents normally vote um, along the lines of the Democrats. And here's where the math comes in. So you take 33 percent, go ahead and take point, I'm going to times that by 0.85, you know, and that's going to come out to maybe 25 percent of the overall 100 percent of the American electorate who unfortunately are these nut jobs and there's no rhyme or reason to even try um, and to have any kind of a meaningful 
um, you know, discourse, conversation with these people. So you just basically have to learn how to live with them. And that's that's just life. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not getting into the nut job or anything, but what I do know based on the reading I do or the things I see is Trump is by far and away the leader heading into the primaries. So I don't know what changes between now and then. I mean, the second closest contender, I, I think, is Florida Governor DeSantis, and then there's very woeful numbers for others who have thrown their name in the hat. But I, I mean, I don't know where this goes. And again, I'm in no position of authority to speak to because I have tuned it out in large part, but uh, I think the next few months will be very telling. Well, I think it's very important to keep in mind that the Democrats are more than happy to have Trump be the nominee because he will never be elected again in the state. I think people said that in 2016, though, as well. Well, well, that's true. That's true. We've learned our lessons. And um, and just to finish up, I was really surprised that the caller from Ohio uh, didn't mention that. But again, if, if people do their due diligence, do their research and look at all of the elections that have taken place since um, the day after we discovered, you know, that Trump had been elected and uh, Tuesday special election in Ohio was another um, of of a long series of elections, special elections, um, uh, midterms, whatever, in which the Republicans have not learned and are continuing to get their asses kicked because you know in Ohio what they what what it was all about they simply wanted to change a simple majority to make any additions or changes to the state constitution. The Republicans wanted to change that from a simple majority to a supermajority of 60%. And in a simple vote, you either vote for it or against it. 57% of the people who voted, voted it down. And that just is one election after the other. That's why we don't have a person whose last name is Oz in the Senate uh, from Pennsylvania, even worse, that there's not a person whose last name is Walker uh, in the Senate from Georgia, and that in the state of Georgia, where people think that it's a red state, they have two Democratic senators. One is a white gentleman who is Jewish, and the other one is a black gentleman, the Reverend Warnock. So I think people should should do a little bit of math, do their due diligence and a little bit of research because it is yeah, it is very disappointing and it saddens me, but I really do not believe that it's anywhere near as bad uh as, you know, it appears if you happen to be on social media, which I am on none of social media because I think it's a complete and total waste of time. People cherry-pick the most extreme points of view representing either side of the political spectrum, and and consequently people think that that's exactly who everybody is in support of one party or another. Not helpful, but that's how, unfortunately, media operates far too often, and it's absolutely a feature, not a bug, of social media. Juan, I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Oh, yeah, and and you do such a great job, and I hope people understand um, what a wonderful thing they have in you and your program and the station. So, um, you know, carry on. Have a great day. Thanks, Juan. Same to you.
All right, there we go. Uh, very quickly, a note from a listener about standing water on the Trans-Canada Highway between Whitburn and Clarenville. Raining heavily, really foggy, and apparently maybe some swervy back bumpers looking like maybe some hydroplane action is very possible there. So between Whitburn and Clarenville, a lot of standing water, and we all know the condition of the ruts and the like on the highway, so be careful. So let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, Connie's there to talk about the disability tax credit. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Connie, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, I just uh, heard the uh, tail end of a conversation you had a couple of days ago about uh, the disability credit or something. Mm-hmm. Disability tax credit, yes, ma'am. Um, how do you go about finding any more information about it? Because I Googled it online and it seems quite complicated. It can be. Uh, do you use email by chance, Connie? Yes. If you send me an email, I will send you two links, one with the overall overview of disability benefits in the country, and then I'll send you another link, which is the Disability Tax Credit Calculator, where you put in some very basic information, and it gives you back what you might be eligible for. So I can do that for you. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, no problem at all. Send me an email. It's openline at vocm.com, and uh, I will reply as soon as I can. Vocm.com. All right, thank you very much. No problem, Connie. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, there you go. Let's go to line number three. Clarence, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty boy. Uh, the news I'm hearing around Bayvert now, I moved Bayvert in 1953, and we had a radio station. And I'm hearing now that they're going to take the radio station away from us as of the uh, last of August. So what information have you got on that, Patty? Same thing, sir. That's unfortunately what I've also been told is that whatever the proper word is for the infrastructure, the repeater or whatever it is we use to amplify the signal, is it was broken and not being replaced. That's what I've heard, too, which is uh, as someone who's sitting in a chair that relies on listeners, I found it to be unfortunate, but that's what the company's also told me. Oh, I don't know if it's broken or not, because it must be fixed, because we, we have got radio station here in Bayward right now. It's mm-hmm. a Bayward Peninsula, and there's a lot of uh, important information that's passed down from you and everybody else that uh, that we depends on our road conditions and accidents and washouts or whatever. So, it, to me, it's a, it's a necessity. I don't dispute it. And, of course, I have absolutely zero authority in this building, but that's what I have been told. Now, I will say that there's, thankfully, other ways that you can get the, the station and get this program, whether it be on the Internet, where we have a listen live right at VOCM.com, all of the other uh, applications that people use to get podcasts and other radio stations, you can get us there. For some places inside your Internet, or pardon me, your cable offering on your television, you can listen to us there. So I do think it's unfortunate uh, that you're going to see the loss of the radio signal in traditional radio but hopefully people will realize you can get us other ways and use that like on my tv service i have bell in my home it's like channel 748 or something is vocm so you can listen there listen on your laptop or your ipad or whatever so there's still other options out there and hopefully people will use them yeah, well, if you're on the highway from here to Grand Falls, there's a lot of information or Cornerbrook or wherever. There's a lot of information comes on that radio that you can't get on your laptop or you're on a bare road. I 100% understand. And you got your cell phone. That's only good in Bay Verde and Lassie. And, and, and when you get almost to Grand Falls, there's, uh, there's several places you might pick, pick up a clincher that you might have to back up two or three times in order to get cell phone service. So mm-hmm. we're going to be at a loss, Patty. Yes, sir. I completely and, understand. Uh, what can our government do for us? He, uh, our government is helping everybody else that, that needs money, so if our radio station got something there that broke, 
Can't our government step in and, and throw a few dollars into it for safety reasons? Uh, well, uh, that's something way above my pay grade. But, of course, we're a private sector. And I don't think we get any government support beyond whether or not they buy uh, ads or something here on the station about moose vehicle safety and those types of things. So I don't know if that's even a realistic opportunity for the company to explore. And, uh, again, that's way above my pay grade. And I have no idea what the conversations sound like at the executive level. But uh, it's an interesting question. And maybe my general manager uh, is actually listening to the program right now and he can fill me in on some of the details that I'm probably not privy to. Uh, But that's all I know at this moment, Clarence. And as someone who relies on listeners, uh, I think it's unfortunate, but that decision was made way above me. Yeah, I agree with you, boys. Only so much power you got, but uh, can, can somebody pass along to to the upper parts of the, the government and see what uh, what if there's some money there that we can put in for? We got to put another extra cent on our gas. Clarence, what I will do on your behalf is I will uh, voice your concerns, your questions uh, that you post here on the air to the management here in the building. If they respond to me, I'll respond to you. Uh, so I don't know what will happen there, but I'll do it for you. That's no problem. Okay, see yep. what you can do for us, boy, because it's very important that we urge you for one thing. Yeah, and again, I have legitimately zero authority, but I will pose your questions directly to my boss. No problem. You, you do that. You do that, and thank you. I appreciate your time, Clarence. Thanks a lot. Okay, okay take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all I know about it, to be honest. But uh, questions that any of the listening public has about it, I will pass them along on your behalf. No problem. Let's go to line number two. Charles, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, Patty, I'd like to report something that I saw yesterday when I was traveling from from Air Bay to Gambo. Okay. About the, the trees. I don't know if anyone reported it. I noticed there's a, a half a lot of like big whips spinning around the trees. I had some kind of an insect or a bug, and I think the, the I think there's just Starting to kill the trees, taking taking the color out of the leaves and everything on the birch and alders and stuff like that, right? And where was this, sir? Road? Where'd you notice this? Uh, from here by the Gamble. I haven't been out in that uh, area this summer at all, and I don't know what that may be describing. I, I don't know if, if, if forestry or anyone is aware of it, but boy, it looks awful. It's big, like big, big blob whips, like on spin around the, the tops of the trees. <laughs> yeah, so some kind of a insect or something is doing it, is causing it. I mean, it could be uh, doing damage to our to our forestry, right? It could be. I know exactly and who to ask. All is, I mean, I notice it on the juniper trees too, right? Yeah, and I don't know what it is, but I know exactly who I can ask. Yeah, it would be all right to check it out. I mean, because, I mean, somebody needs to get on there and Probably, probably might need to be sprayed or something, you know. If it's something invasive that could potentially kill those trees, I'm sure somebody yes. knows about it. But I do absolutely know the right person to go to to see if they know about it and what's being uh, done or not being done. I know that the colors come, you know, coming out of the leaves. The leaves are turning kind of brownish on the trees there where those whips, those big whips spin, oh, my God, but some of two, three feet, Right. And it looks like a mat, like on on the trees. Interesting. Yeah? Well, I know an arborist, and they absolutely will know exactly what's going on out there because they've worked province-wide. So I will send that person an email, see if they can give me some insight as to what you're seeing. 
Yeah. Okay, then. Thanks anyway. I appreciate you bringing it up, Charles. Thanks a lot. Okay, then. Yeah. Take uh, care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I know an arborist who probably has an answer to uh, Charles's question and concern. All right. Last check-in on the Twitter box for the day. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Suggestions on people we should and could have on the program. Comments of what you've heard on this program or anything in general. All right. The email address is openline at VOCM.com. But we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.